The Hurling Pod on OTB Sports. I love the way Fikini celebrates. I love the way Limerick celebrates a monster, right? To, to go, we actually want to win the next you know, Or the treatment is just another game, another step stone. That's, that's a question I have. Subscribe to the GA podcast feed on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. It's half past seven. You're very welcome along to Monday's OTBAM. It's Owen and Nathan with you right the way through until 10 o'clock this morning. We're going to have Alan Quinlan with us a little bit later on to pick through a couple of disappointing results for the Irish provinces in the URC. We'll have Anthony Moyles with us in studio to react to the quarterfinal draw in the All-Ireland Football Championship, which is taking place a little bit later on this morning. And of course, we'll be chatting plenty about the Republic of Ireland. Gavin Cooney is in Poland and we'll be crossing over to him before tomorrow night's game against Ukraine. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on Saturday. Are you getting carried away on this uh, wave of emotion that we saw after a brilliant 3-0 win against Scotland or are you very much saying let's just wait and see how things go in Poland tomorrow night. You can tweet us at Off The Ball or comment on the YouTube stream if that's where you're getting us. Nathan, you are one of those people who uh, got to witness this great performance on Saturday. Have you managed to come down off that high yet or were you never up there anyway? Oh no, I was up there. Yeah. I was right up there. I've been uh, right up there all weekend from Michael Obafemi... Oshin Mullen, Rory McElroy. Whew. You're Mount Rushmore. Couldn't sleep last people. night. Couldn't sleep last night. I was buzzing. This is like a, a star studded Nathan Murphy weekend. I couldn't think of anything going better for you. No, it was uh, magic uh, right from the off. Uh, of course, I'm getting carried away with the Republic of Ireland. Doesn't everybody? Like, this is the extremes. We'll do our power rankings in a moment. Every time the Republic of Ireland play, they're always going to be in red or green, unless they've their traditional one all away, draw away from home. But uh, yeah, it was. It was a great day at Lansdowne Road on Saturday. The sun was shining and the stadium was pretty much packed and scored some absolutely sensational goals. Like The second and third goal were, as we keep saying, very un-Irish, which is uh, maybe doing ourselves down a little bit. But uh, the quality of the second goal and then just the brilliance of Michael Obafemi and uh, getting to talk to him afterwards. Like, what a likeable, what a likeable young man. Mm. Uh, just a brilliant personality. Somebody, you know, Irish football could sort of hang their hat on in terms of being an inspiration over the next few years if he can manage to stay fit. Uh, so, yeah, good weekend all round. Ireland win, Mayo get the job done and Roy McIlroy sticks it to the man. Uh, the man being Greg Norman, of course, in, in this case. Uh, we're all just, just very proud that he's gone one clear of Greg Norman at this moment. We will have plenty of Rory, we will have plenty of Mayo in the performance rankings, and as I say, Ireland. But you were talking to Mike Lobafemi afterwards. You put it to him that it was the best goal you've ever seen at the Aviva Stadium, probably since the assist for the Troy Parrot goal at the Aviva Stadium. But who, who, what other goals are in the conversation here? Did, did you do like a quick. Gavin, uh, like you've really put me on the spot now. Before, like, I, I'm, I, I, I'm sure as like a professional journalist, you were like thinking to yourself, I have to have my facts together here and have a little... Well, the best goal isn't factual, head. it's opinion-owned. Yeah, of uh, well, the obvious one, because uh, while I think Michael Obafemi's quality-wise was unquestionably mm. uh, the best goal at the Aviva Stadium, uh, context is obviously almost massive importance, so Shane Long against Germany. Yeah, of like, course. You know, it had the finish as well, uh, it looked beautiful on TV, and it had the importance of beating the best side in the world at the time. Uh, other great goals, uh, Darren Gibson scored one, didn't he? He scored from a long distance strike many years ago. Was it against Wales, maybe in the Carling Nations Cup? Trying to think of the long distance strikes that Ireland have scored. Or conceded. I'm thinking Azerbaijan and Luxembourg here, yeah. So you're thinking we're doing down the Azerbaijanis and the. Of course, we're always doing them. Whereas by not. Enough respect. I I still think Obafemi's was far better than both of those. Yeah. He's exactly 30 yards out. 
you can see when the ball hits the back of the net, it bounces all the way out of the penalty area again, such as the power. And he'd never scored a goal in his entire career from outside the penalty area before. Right. Which is a remarkable statistic. He says himself he's a goal poacher. Uh, and we haven't really seen that from him so far in the couple of appearances that he's had. He hasn't had too many opportunities inside the area. His link-up play was brilliant. But just the venom that he hit that shot with, uh, there was absolutely nothing the goalkeeper could do. Like, this was a top, top-tier goal. So, absolutely, I am going with this as the best goal scored at the Aviva Stadium. Colm just said into my ear that it's objectively the best goal ever scored at the Aviva Stadium. So, that is that settled. There's no opinion about it. Mike Lobafemi, best goal ever at uh, the New Lansdowne Road. Uh, it is 7.34. You're with us here on OTBAM. It's brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Coming up over the next little while, we'll have the performance rankings coming your way in just a second. Gavin Cooney is in Poland. He'll chat to us ahead of tomorrow night's game against Ukraine. The sports news coming your way at 8.35 and we'll bring you news of that quarter-final draw in the All-Ireland Football Championship at that point. Then we'll have Alan Quinlan with us at 10 to 9 to talk about the URC semi-finals. Anthony Moyles with us in studio at 10 past 9. And then more reaction from yesterday's show from David Snade on that win for the Republic of Ireland over Scotland yesterday. Uh, now, as I say, uh, OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs, and it is time for the Gillette Labs performance rankings right now. You know, that wasn't an All-Ireland winning performance. Probably should have won the game based on the second-half performance. Is it a step too far to say it was the performance so far of the World Cup? Maybe not. OTBAM's performance rankings with Gillette. I'm, I'm scratching my head. That performance is just lacked that intensity. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Every week we're giving away a Gillette Labs shaving kit and to be in with a chance of winning, just let us know who you think should make the performance rankings. The best place to enter is the Off The Ball Instagram page. You'll see the comments box on our story every Sunday evening. Nathan, you are guiding us through these this morning. We'll go from uh, the bad right way through to the good. So where are we starting? I'm in your seat on. There's a lot of pressure. We're going to start in the red. GAA scheduling. Sky Sports couldn't distance themselves quickly enough from the scheduling of the two qualifiers in Crow Park on Saturday. I couldn't find an official attendance figure, but it looked to be abysmal, and there is no place worse in the world than Crow Park in a, not even half empty, was it a quarter full? It really didn't feel like it, and it was nonsensical. We all knew this was going to happen. We all knew this from last Monday when these fixtures were scheduled. Why are you dragging these four counties to Dublin, an assumption that the Mayo supporters will travel no matter what. We are in a fuel crisis. The price of petrol has never been higher. It's impossible to get a hotel in Dublin on a weekend like this. There was what, Dermot Kennedy on Friday night? So Duran Duran was on last night. We had Ireland against Scotland on Saturday as well. And the expectation that these supporters will just keep on travelling with all the expense involved for a match at Crow Park that was, was never going to take off. Why not have this in Tullamore or Port Leash or even the Hyde Park or somewhere where you have 20,000, 25, maybe even you get 30,000 where people can just rock up for the day, park up, pay their fiver in the field. But to have it in Crow Park has backfired yet again. And even from a male point of view, I could tell towards the end of last week, I didn't know anyone travelling up. And I don't think that was uh, in a, well, we presume that Mayo will win, though I think there was a bit of, well, you know, if Mayo do win, they're going to be back here in two weeks' time and there might be an All-Ireland semi-final as well to come quickly after that. And also, Mayo have been in Dublin to play Dublin in the league. Uh, they've been in Dublin for the league final. And now they're back again. And listen, 
it, it was clear the Mayo players were very keen to play in Crow Park and the management were happy with that, but it needs to be about more than that. It, it needs to be about what the like, dragging Clare supporters up. Like, Clare supporters, more of them deserve to see that victory, like a momentous victory. And I know it was important for them to win in Crow Park and all of that, but we've got to get this right. We cannot. It's, it's killing the product. Like, these are big games. These are final round qualifiers. These are important matches that should be played with an atmosphere. And we saw the benefits of that yesterday. With yeah, Tyrone and Armagh in Clonus, which again is a big stadium, uh, you know, can hold what up in forty thousand in Clonus. But when you have a stadium that is nearly full, like it, it, it was it was enjoyable to watch on TV because it felt like it meant something. Whereas obviously the two games on Saturday meant the exact same, but it didn't feel like it. Yeah, yeah, d- definitely. Like I, I, I do think obviously that there's obviously something going on here that they need to get games played in Croke Park. I'm not sure is it down to maybe people who have premium tickets who need to have a certain amount of games every year or something like that or they're trying to, to claw some of those games back for those patrons if we can call them that after after COVID maybe maybe that's one of the ex- like things that you could use to explain it but I don't think these games should be played in Croke Park but nor should the quarterfinals be played in Croke Park like if Mayo come out of the hat this morning and draw a Kerry or a Dublin maybe Dublin you play that in Croke Park but it, do you really want to, to play that Kerry game in, in Croke Park is there you know a certain other provincial ground that famously held a game between those two that would give you a better uh, uh, atmosphere and I think that goes for all those potential matchups I think maybe the only possible matchup in that quarter final that you'd really want to see in Croke Park is, is Mayo against Dublin everything else would be better served by being outside of Croke Park what I will say but is that going to be, if whoever Dublin gets whoever Dublin gets it's going to be in Croke Park Yes, well, sorry, they're all, all four games going to be in Crow Park. But again, it doesn't make any sense, like dragging Derry down if it's <coughs> Derry against Armagh, having that in Crow Park. Yeah, well, we know, we know it's going to be fixed for, for Croker. That's not going to change. That's definitely where the games are going to happen the weekend after next. Uh, Jared Markham has been in touch to say they bring the, the hurling quarterfinals at Hurlis, which will be in Croke Park, and now there will be a scramble for tickets. Like, I mean, are they? Um, I think the situation with that is, I think, is better than the football where you do have two cracking games on uh, the only issue there is that they're on the same ticket isn't it like, what's the problem with there being a scramble for tickets but like well. you could just play them on separate days like it's a double header in, in Thurlis one at 145 one at 345 this Saturday could you potentially have played one of them on Sunday I may be missing something there in terms of you know you've got the like I think the, the minor game is actually on the Gaelic grounds on, on Saturday and maybe there's a, a mi- another minor game on in Semple on Friday as well I'm, I'm not sure what the makeup is there maybe there's a reason for having them back to back and uh, and maybe it's because they want to keep the Talton Cup semi-finals in their own place on Sunday but anyway that's kind of like a a small conversation around that I think third is for the semi for the quarterfinals and the hurling is really good. What what I did take away from Saturday though is that what we did get were actually two really good games that I really enjoyed. And yes, you can absolutely feel a lack of atmosphere from the stadium, but you do kind of forget about it when you're saying, "Oh, hold on here, Claire have a penalty in injury time." You do forget about it when the second half of Mayo versus Kildare is just unbelievably chaotic wasn't necessarily packed with quality but it was mad it was absolutely mad it was as mad as Newbridge was in 2018 as a television not as a television spectacle but as a as a game and you do forget about that for a minute and I do genuinely believe that the four games that we got the weekend of football that we got was the best of the year and it, it's a bit unfortunate that I guess one of the, the main things about it is that there'll be a lot of Mayo fans and a lot of Clare fans and to be fair it goes for um, the Ross Common fans as well that just didn't make the journey because you know they live on the other side of the country and it's just bloody expensive to go up and watch a game in a cavernous stadium. Um, but at least the Kildare fans, I guess, were served relatively well, which is all that matters. Were they? They enjoyed their day out. Yeah, 
Yeah, they certainly right. did. We, we'll come back to this in just a moment uh, because we'll get stuck into Mayo and the games. But uh, second up in the red in our performance rankings this morning is uh, regarding the URC. Yes, the URC final, the one we've all dreamed of, the Bulls <laughs> against the Stormers. Yeah, a bit of a shock to the system for Irish rugby over the weekend. Uh, Leinster beaten on Friday night. Ulster just about edged out on Saturday. And uh, quite the post-mortem, I would expect, for Leinster after this game. Nobody was quite expecting. I think uh, the Bulls are maybe 14-1 to 1, uh, to beat Leinster. So it was a heck of a shock. And while it was a one-point game in the end, the game was obviously done uh, quite a few minutes before that. And Leinster end the season... Uh, trophyless for what the first time in five seasons uh, question marks about their physicality again after a couple of years against Saracens a couple of years now against La Rochelle uh, that the arrival of the South African teams into the URC and now from next season into the Champions Cup as well that Leinster need to find something different it was interesting listening to Leo Cullen after the game describing it as squeeze rugby admitting yeah. that they were outpowered but said it's not really in our DNA and that's a conversation that's going to have to happen in Leinster over the course of the summer because it's not like they score an insane amount of tries on those regular Friday night URC games where yeah, I think most people have felt that the URC hasn't served Leinster pretty well because they've been so far ahead of everybody else uh, scoring over, what, four tries on average in every single URC game this season. But do you now have to alter your plans because of the arrival of the South Africans? And I think that's already in train. Like, I've rarely seen Leo Cullen as excited as when he's been talking about Jason Jenkins coming in. And you know, a lot of people think Jason Jenkins is not exactly a superstar, but he is a big, big boy. And Leo Cullen obviously sees something there that he's going to be able to be an impact player in matches like this. Uh, but yeah, maybe a bit of a shock for Leinster, for Irish rugby in general, what's gone on over the last few weeks. I think the URC is in green, though, after those. Uh, like anybody winning as a 14 to 1 underdog in a semi final represents a good competition. The drama at the end of the Ulster game was absolutely mad. I think it's the Irish provinces, really, that should be in the red this morning. What you have all of a sudden now next year is Leinster going up against the South African teams with a sense of narrative around it. That just didn't exist over the last little while because these rivalries were brand new. The rivalries did not exist. And now all of a sudden you've got a team who are kind of ripping the Leinster game plan apart a little bit and, and saying this is how we're going to beat you and doing so successfully. Like Colin did say that there was a commonality between the La Rochelle defeat, the Saracens defeats and now uh, the, the defeat at the weekend as well. So there is a, a theme emerging here that we thought had been corrected somewhat by Leinster this year but it clearly hasn't and I mean they'd completed the signing of Jason Jenkins long before these defeats started to happen for them mm. so maybe even inside the camp they realised that there was a little bit of extra work they needed to do in terms of heft but it is a little bit deja vu isn't it this conversation that we have around Irish rugby where I know it's not Ireland but it is essentially Ireland uh, Leinster getting beaten in that way over the last little while and just this question of, of, of heft and maybe New Zealand won't be a rude awakening for the Ireland rugby team this summer maybe Ireland might win a test down there uh, next month but it does feel that the last couple of weeks have been a little bit of a an edging towards the alarm button uh, when it comes to, to Irish rugby the sort of concerns that people would have had around the power you know they haven't gone anywhere 
and it would be very very interesting to see what would happen if, if Ireland came up against a South Africa uh, in, in the morning for example with these well, will uh, later in the year so we get a, a proper uh, sense of it then uh, like a question of the heft and I think listening to Bernard Jackman as well a question about the depth of this Leinster squad uh, they used up on 60 players this season and you know I often feel this when we're doing the depth chart around Ireland as well like real depth is that you can replace one player with another player and there's not a great difference in quality and it seems from looking at the way Leinster have used that squad over the last week that maybe the management aren't convinced that there isn't a big difference in terms of quality uh, Bernard Jackman outlined it just in the pay-per-view the amount of players in the pack who are coming on just too late in games like in the last couple of minutes where you're just throwing them on whereas you compare it to La Rochelle who had a you know, set game plan in advance to say exactly when they were going to make their changes to the pack so why don't Leinster trust these players? Uh, questions as to why Devin Toner wasn't playing and considering the problems they've had in the lineouts, and even though he's leaving the province was a decision made because he's on his way out that we're, you know, somehow we're still building towards the future here. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of players in that Leinster squad who we think are set for superstardom, but again, maybe we've all just got a bit carried away with some of these younger players. I would be curious to see as well if Leinster had beaten La Rochelle, which could easily have happened and had they got through Friday night would we be having these conversations at all and I'm sure that's but that, that, that is the reason we're having them is that these are the defining games of your season that part of the problem with the URC has been that Leinster wins so matches so many matches so comfortable it's hard to judge exactly where they are so these are the games where those young players have to perform and you know Sexton is on the bench on on Friday night does it underline again that Sexton has to start these big games? Is it a real concern again that if Sexton's not there, that Ross Byrne, that Harry Byrne, that they're still not ready to go and take a game like this, a, a semi-final in the URC and to control it? So I think it, it'll leave a lot of questions for Leinster. Not that the players have much time to uh, think about this. I'm sure a lot of them will be in Andy Farrell's squad and they're flying out either next Sunday night or next Monday to New Zealand. So there's not too much time. Uh, to lick the wounds. Edward Freeman has been in touch to say Leinster weren't overpowered on Friday. Their scrum was stronger. The problem was the line-out was cleaned out and they couldn't get any decent possession in the second half. Which is interesting when you listen to the squeeze rugby comment from Leo Cullen that he did kind of accept that analysis yeah. that there, there is a little bit of a, a strength conversation there. And he actually referred back to the Lions tour of last summer when this was a real topic of conversation around every match. Was, you know, th- this is the way rugby is played at the moment. South Africa were leaders at it. It may not be pretty, but get used to it. It's winning rugby. And I think that he was kind of alluding to that and, on Friday night himself. And MOC says the tour to New Zealand looks like a damp squib now. <laughs> James Ryan is not a captain. And Dave Cause says Leinster hubris the champions. We'll be getting Alan Quinlan's thoughts and all of that at around uh, 10 to 9 this morning. Uh, most importantly though, we have got Mayo covered this morning on the performance rankings. They're in amber, Nathan. We're not putting Mayo in green till, you know, it finally happens. <laughs> They're just going to stay in orange. Uh, they were in orange last Monday. They're in orange this Monday. And uh, understandably so because you know, they have progressed once again. They have managed to win another qualifier against another decent team uh, but have done so probably raising more questions than answers. Um, this wasn't a vintage Mayo performance. Uh, it's been probably put up there as one of their worst performances in Crow Park. It's still, they managed to come through and win that game. And even even when Kildare were in total control, there's always that sense with Mayo that a bounce is coming, that they will somehow grind their way through this. So uh, I'd be interested to hear what Anthony Moyles thinks. I don't know anyone who quite knows where Mayo are right now. It doesn't feel as though they're anywhere near as where they've been over the last decade, yet they're back in an All-Ireland quarter-final once again. And I think a huge amount depends on the draw. 
the way the draws worked out, Mayo can't play Galway. So, you know, there's two out of three chance they end up against Kerry or Dublin in a quarterfinal, which then means in all likelihood you have to play the other one in a semi-final. And whichever team ends up in that position or whichever two teams end up on that side of the draw, you know, it's it's a huge challenge to beat one, never mind to go and beat the two of them in back-to-back games. So Mayo need to find something. Like, the only reason... I think anyone has belief still in Mayo. It's not based on the performances over the last couple of weeks. It's just that they've always managed to find a way over the last decade to win games, to grind it out. And even going back to the Galway match, again, where you know they were so poor for 45, 50 minutes, when the stakes were at their highest, they played their best football in those last 10 minutes of the game. All right, missed a kick at the end to, to get a draw and send it to extra time. But when, when it really matters in the closing stages of games, they still seem to be able to pull out their best football. But it needs to improve rapidly because if you end up against Derek, Dublin or Kerry, that game will be over at half time. I just uh, predicting a draw is a really stupid thing to do, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway and predict that Mayo are going to draw Derry this morning and it's going to be Mayo against Dublin or Kerry in the final and it'll be the, the same as it ever was and Mayo will find their way to the final once again. I take it on. I take it. Right now I, I take beaten. it. So the big question I have for you is that uh, in April 2020 you put Cora Staunton, Lee McHale, Kevin Kilban and Kieran McDonald on your Mayo Mount Rushmore. How close is Lee Keegan to knocking one of them off that mountain. Well, I, I did the first Mount Rushmore mm-hmm. and uh, mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. <laughs> let's, let's hold our hands up there. I, I was probably too personal about it. I, you know, Lee McHale was my favourite Mayo player growing up. I heard Mossy Quinn say he's Mayo's greatest ever player and I think most people would agree uh, that he probably is now Mayo's greatest ever player. You know, Kieran MacDonald is, I don't want to say he's just a cult hero because he was way, way more than that and maybe he's Mayo's most skillful ever player. But I think what Lee Keegan has achieved on big occasions in All-Ireland Finals, uh, how he has been able to play his own game all the time and counter the man he's marking, and the longevity that he's had as well, and to still be, it seems, at the absolute peak of his powers at this stage, uh, he has to be up there. Uh, And I think it's probably probably a done deal now that Lee Keegan is Mayo's greatest ever player. Yeah, wow, that's... uh You've heard it here, so that that is changing your Mount Rushmore. Then that is that, like still love Lee McHale, though. Yeah. Still love Lee McHale, of course. But well, you see, Lee, Lee, in terms of Mount Rushmore, obviously McHale, McHale got in because of the basketball and the football. So what we're what we're coming to is Caban. Going to have to think about this. <laughs> and sorry, one last question then. Who who do you want at half eight this morning? Derry. You want Derry? Okay, absolutely. absolutely. Was, that a, was that a stupid question? I mean, the dairy, the dairy people here. Would well, the be, draw is it's 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 similar to uh, was it the twenty eighteen World Cup where suddenly around the quarterfinal stage everyone looked, or even the last sixteen stage went, whoa! All of the strongest teams are on one side of the draw, and a lot of the mid-ranking teams are the other. So we're going to get a team that nobody at the start of the season was really expecting in an All Ireland final there. So depending on how this draw goes, like we will obviously know exactly what the run through for the rest of the season is, that if you end up on the opposite side to Dublin and Kerry, and this isn't being disrespectful because all these teams feel seem on a similar-ish level and maybe Mayo even aren't on the level of, of Galway and Derry right now, uh, but I think any team that sees themselves on the other side of the draw to Dublin and Kerry will feel there's a massive opportunity to squeeze themselves into an All-Ireland final. I think if you manage to get Mayo, Derry... Armagh and Galway on the one side of the draw all of those four counties will be thinking middle of July we're, we're going to the All-Ireland final there'll be an absolute chance for them and that's that's like a, a brilliant element of, of what's happened over the last little while that it is a little bit lopsided uh, C-Mark's been in touch to say why are Clare footballers not in green joke 
And I mean, Keelan Sexton should probably be in the green for his performance. One one in the last five minutes. Well, I don't, I don't know how you go about this. I, I have to apologise, obviously. On this is your gig at the performance mm. rankings that you never ever get wrong. Yeah, uh, and I got absolutely hammered last week because I didn't have the Munster hurling final in green. <sighs> There was a good game of hurling that you didn't compliment. I, You're not allowed to do that. I, I apologise. Rule, rule number hurling, one performance rankings. People. Always give hurling uh, credit. I, I thought, you see, that what happened with the performance ranking is you put in all the stuff that we weren't going to talk about later. So I left out Claire and I left out Armagh out of green because I assume we're going to talk about them in depth yeah. with Anthony Moyles a little bit later. And neither of them deserve to be an orange. Mayo deserve to be an orange. They, they do. Mayo are the, the living embodiment of orange. Uh, Shane says, why is Donegal not in the red? It's a very good question as well, Shane. Donegal, one of the most, I would say one of the greatest underachievers over the last few years in, in Gaelic football, but the players that they have, even yesterday, there was kind of like a an underachievement within the game. The, the madness of, of their collapse is, is actually spectacular. We, we will dive deep into it a little bit later on with, with Anthony Miles, but their story since that 2014 semi-final win against Dublin has been pretty interesting like they've never made it back to a semi-final since that point and you really do feel that that's a team with the quality to be back into the semi-final and maybe even make it to a final and perhaps they are the example of why the provincial championships really are screwed is that they've had a, a tougher path than most every single year and they've suffered as a result of it maybe not maybe it's it's all internal and maybe they could have done a lot more themselves to, to try and get over the line in, in a couple of those big games over the last little while uh, and then really the only other thing to mention from the Gaelic Football Weekend is of course Armagh which we'll get to a little bit later on I think if Armagh come out of the the, the bowl on the side of Galway and Derry this morning I think Reen O'Neill is in the conversation for Footballer of the Year because I think there's a very very real chance that he'll make it to a final if they come out on that side of the draw I'm not saying they will make it but there's a very good chance David Clifford uh, well I think that there's every chance that David Clifford gets taken out in an All-Ireland quarter-final or Oof. semi-final potentially semi-final oh this is proper good proper so yearism even ahead of the draw you're, you're saying that the other four the four counties in this draw are so cynical they're going to try and take David Clifford out of the game yes let's go with that yeah that's that's exactly what outrageous I said outrageous slur uh, I, it's I, outrageous I, I think <laughs> I, th- I think that there's just a, just a live possibility if if you're uh, if you're looking if you're looking to predict footballer of the year. I'll take David Clifford I, out. I of think game. Wait, wait till you wait till you see half half eight and see if uh, if Reno O'Neill gets get manages to avoid uh, Dublin and Kerry. I think there's a chance he could uh, be the footballer of the year this year. But you know it's just an outside outside shot. Uh, we've got a couple of things to go through in the green because there were some good news stories in the weekend, Nathan. Yes, Rory McIlroy in the green. Victory last night at the Canadian Open. He won it in 2019. It was cancelled for a couple of years because of COVID. So it's actually the first time he's ever defended a title. And it was a brilliant final round. It couldn't have worked out better in terms of entertainment for the PGA Tour, who are in the midst of this war with Live Golf. And they couldn't have a better frontman right now than Rory McIlroy, who, as well as being still, I think, the biggest star relevancy-wise, with Tiger Woods not playing much golf, uh, has also sort of become this moral champion for golf. And it seems to sit very comfortably on his shoulders. Uh, on the golf, they had a final pairing of Justin Thomas, Rory McIlroy and Tony Finau. So three huge names. And the scoring was incredibly low. At one stage, it looked like Justin Rose may shoot the first ever 57 on the PGA Tour. In the end, he had a bogey on 18 for 60. McIlroy and Thomas shot the lights out again. At one stage, we thought both of them might be going for a 59. And McIlroy, 
over that closing stretch of five or six holes, there were some nervy moments, particularly uh, as he sort of went down 15-16. His driving started to let him down, hit a couple of drives way left, uh, missed a couple of three-footers on the green, but his wedge play was exceptional all week, and particularly yesterday. It's an area of his game that a lot of people have felt has held him back hugely over the last couple of years, that when he's anywhere sort of between 125, 160, 70 yards, that he's just not close enough. And that when you look at his putting stats, actually, part of the issue is that he's just leaving himself with too much to do in the greens compared to other top players. But on 17 and 18, he more than delivered the goods. And throughout yesterday's round, his wedge play was as good as I've ever seen uh, from McElroy. And he just about held off the challenge of Justin Rose or Justin Thomas, who faded and uh, made a mess of 17 and of 18. Uh, so Rory wins, which is huge from a pure golfing point of view because we are in U.S. Open week. It's at Brookline just outside Boston. It all gets underway on Thursday. So Rory's going in on a huge wave of momentum. He did win this, as I say, back in 2019 and he finished inside the top 10 at the U.S. Open that year. But you would hope that actually he can go a little bit closer this time. And obviously he showed at the Masters that maybe his first round yips are out of the way a little bit. But he now has to deal with the expectation that goes with winning last night. Uh, the other side, and another reason why Rory McIlroy just always says the right thing. Just always says the right thing. So last night was his 21st victory on the PGA Tour, which in itself is a huge achievement. Uh, moved him past a certain Greg Norman on the all-time list. And Rory, Rory wasn't going to... You know, I thought these are the sort of stats that I like. Turns out Rory was well aware of this stat as well, Owen. Yeah, let's have a listen. Amanda, it's all yours. Rory, on a week where you have emphasized how important it is for you to play against the world's best, what does this win in this scene mean to you? Yeah, it's um, it's incredible. Uh, you know, playing with Tony and JT today, two of the top players in the world, and I'm, all of us playing the way we did. I mean, I think the worst score of the group was, whatever, six under par. Um, yeah, this is the day I'll remember for a long, long time. Uh, 21st PGA Tour win, uh, one more than someone else. Uh, that gave me a little bit of extra incentive today, and um, happy to get it done. Justin Thomas as well was tweeting with uh, a winky face after the number 21 as well on uh, on Twitter yesterday. So you can imagine the conversations that are ha- that are being had behind closed doors between like the likes of Justin Thomas and Rory McIlroy about Greg Norman at the moment. Today, though, the big thing, I think 6 o'clock, Phil Mickelson is in front of the press. 6 o'clock Irish time, that is going to be pretty interesting because he doesn't necessarily always do media before majors, certainly early in the week. And there's only going to be one thing that people are going to be asking him about. And this seems to be quite a, a pinch point as well. The, the majors and the acceptance of live golfers at the majors. This is going to be a very interesting couple of days of a build-up to Brookline. Well, everybody's on a bit of a high who feels that the best players should stay in the PGA Tour because of having such a brilliant finale to the Canadian Open. Uh, Even the scenes with the crowd gathered around the 18th green, the chance of ole ole, just in stark contrast to what we saw in England yesterday or on Saturday for the final round of live golf where... It just felt like a complete irrelevance. People had lost interest by the time it got to Saturday. Charles Schwartz had actually won and won four million quid first prize, the biggest first prize in the history of golf. But I think when things start to settle down, you know, it's been a good week for Live Golf in terms of their aims to basically take over the game of golf. Uh, they got through the first week, yeah, uh, with some teething problems. And some, Phil Mickelson could be interesting because every press conference so far has been... A bit of a shit show, let's be honest. Uh, you know, Gray McDowell has done himself what feels like irreparable damage with what he has had to say over the past couple of weeks. But the likelihood is that by the time they get to Portland, Oregon, 
at the end of June for the next Live Golf event, that they could have 16, 17, 18 of the top 50 in the world. So you have a massive split and you are less likely to have the type of scenes that you had last night where you have the best players in the world in the final group. Now, at the moment, it doesn't look as though any of the top 10 in the world are going to go. And maybe, maybe all the negativity will have an impact. Like Harold Varner, who's not a huge name, he's top 50 in the world rankings, uh, was one of those who was initially seen to be a definite to go to live golf. There have been a lot of reports that you know, he's having second thoughts now because he's seen the backlash that has come towards the players and probably doesn't want that moment where he has to sit in front of the media and give that explanation as to why he's taking this money. But the PGA Tour haven't responded to this in a particularly strong way. Yeah, they came out and they banned the players and said anyone who goes isn't going to be welcome on the PGA Tour. But that was sort of the least they could do. And part of their problem is it's, it's not a fair fight here. Like They can respond by trying to increase prize money, and I'm sure they will. And you know, the rich will get richer on the PGA Tour as well, as they have done already over the past 24 months because of the interest from Live Golf. But Live Golf have invested one, two billion on this, and they don't look like they're going to slow down. So the PGA Tour... If Live Golf decide to go and offer Rory McIlroy 500 million, which you'd imagine he will, the only thing they can rely on is that Rory McIlroy morally doesn't want to go and take that money and feels that his legacy is built on the PGA Tour. And we've now seen them go down a different route. Jay Monaghan, who's the commissioner, has been interviewed last night and was going down the patriotism route. So mm. it came out in the middle of last week that the 9-11 Families Group uh, had written a letter to all the top U.S. stars asking them not to play in this because of the uh, strong Saudi connections to 9-11. And Jay Monaghan, basically, that was uh, his main point in his interview last night to try and keep players was, have you ever had to apologize for being a PGA Tour player? And... I went down the route of I know families. I've had friends who lost people in 9-11. These are difficult conversations to have. So to try and tug in the heartstrings of these players. But it seems clear that anyone I've heard who played in live golf, like there isn't an ounce of remorse or regret or consideration for anything but the amount of money that they're getting. And like Phil Mickelson did a press conference last week and sort of laughed his way through things. I would expect it'll be something similar. And like, this week's going to be fascinating in some ways. Will there be... I can't imagine there will be. Would there be any bit of a negative reaction towards Phil or Dustin Johnson? And also, there's a you know, there's definite possibility that one of the live golfers wins the U.S. Open. Like Dustin Johnson is still one of the best golfers in the world right now. Uh, maybe Dustin Johnson can go and win this week. And what will that mean for that? <laughs> That would be uh, quite the scene. A few people in touch uh, asking about if Liv players are allowed to play at the US Open. That they are this, this week. They are for now. They are this year. Uh, they said, listen, we don't feel that as a US Open, uh, we should change our rules for players who have qualified. But I think they've left it, left it open. And listen, Liv Golf uh, you know, may have weighed this up and looked at the four majors and thought, are they going to unify in a stance alongside the PGA Tour? At the moment, it doesn't look like they will. There's been no indication, uh, really, from the PGA Tour or from the majors that they will ban the players from Live Golf. And, you know, there's a lot of speculation as to what's going on with the European Tour. Uh, we still don't know. We haven't heard at all from the European Tour. So this is going to run and run. But while it was a very, very good night for the PGA Tour and a reminder of how great the PGA Tour can be, it's not a perfect entity in any way, but it gives us that brilliant Sunday night entertainment. And I do always feel sorry for Americans because Sunday night, it's, it's a real... Obviously, in this part of the world, it's Sunday night, but in America, it's like 4 o'clock in the evening. It's like 4 o'clock. But it's perfect Sunday night relaxation for us. So we're just on the couch having a good time watching this. They sort of miss out on that, don't they? <laughs> yeah, poor Americans. 
Absolutely, yeah, bloody hell. That's I never really thought of it like that, Nathan, it turns out. Uh, the last thing in our performance rankings this morning is uh, the Republic of Ireland, which we'll stick with over the next half an hour or so. Uh, any top line from Saturday that we haven't touched on just yet that, that stuck out to you, Nathan? Uh, this was a pivotal game for Stephen Kenny. I felt ahead of kickoff that we'd know a lot as to where we were going at the full-time whistle and the crowd's reaction that if it hadn't gone well, again, there's ways of losing games, and if it hadn't gone well and Ireland had lost in disastrous fashion, if there were boos ringing out the Aviva, you know, we could be heading towards an end game pretty quickly. It couldn't have been more different from that. It was absolute jubilation. Uh, the tightness of the players was was there straight away. The second the full-time whistle went, all of them into a huddle. Uh, they went off in a lap of honour. A huge crowd stay behind. Uh, Stephen Kenny, you know, I think he looked a little bit emotional because, again, that's not too many days like this, uh, certainly in front of a, a packed Aviva Stadium. And all around, it was, you know, it was a really good performance. There were some sloppy bits in the first half that could have given Scotland an opportunity. And if John McGinn takes one of those chances, we could be having a very different conversation this morning. But Ireland got the first goal, and that really felt key to this. Yeah, it was the one scrappy goal, and Adam Brown pops up in the right place again. But that just seemed to ease a little bit of pressure on everybody. And remember against Ukraine, Ireland started well in the first 50 minutes and in Armenia played well in the first 45, but couldn't score. So actually getting a goal and, and scoring three goals at home. I think it's 1989 is the last time Ireland scored three goals at home against a team ranked higher than them in a competitive game. You know, hadn't won a competitive game in three years since a match against Gibraltar. So, yeah, Scotland were great and probably... You know, Andy Robertson was way, way off where you would expect him to be. And McTominay had no great influence in the game. But they're still a decent team. So this, yeah, this is a performance that Ireland need to build from now. They've got a very tough game tomorrow night against what we expect will be a full-strength Ukraine. And they're now missing, unfortunately, several players uh, from Saturday as well. But like, this, is, this is what people thought they were buying into when Stephen Kenny became manager. Young, youthful, exciting, attacking team playing a good quality of football in possession, like the quality of the second goal. Like Troy Parrott's involvement gets somewhat overshadowed by Femi, but he goes up, he wins the initial ball. And then he doesn't just stop and wait, he makes that charging run through. And Obafemi's little dink over the top was, was just sensational. sensational. And for Parrott to have made the run and followed up is exactly what you want. And even then, like the balls and the bravery to take on the shot for the third goal. How often have you seen an Irish attacker drop deep like that and they take the simple option. They roll it out to the right-hand side. The cross is whipped in. It's cleared out of play. You get a corner kick and everyone's happy with that. So, yeah, I, some people will look at the playing it out from the back and say it's still a sign that Ireland are trying to do too much of the wrong thing. I, yeah. I don't think so. I think execution-wise, they got it wrong on a couple of occasions, but every team does that. You have to ask that question of the opposition. So, yeah, it was a, it was a brilliant day. Friday night, uh, Saturday night, 5 o'clock, is a perfect kickoff time, I think. Uh, the atmosphere was cracking, and you just hope that now they can they can kick on from here because you know there's such a, a likable group of players that mm. you really want them to be able to put a run of games together. Yeah, and uh, a bigger test lies in wait tomorrow evening, which we'll get into in just a moment. Good stuff on the performance rankings this morning. Best on. They are uh, Nathan Murphy's performance rankings, nobody's else, and uh, we'll be back next Monday morning with them. OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette. After the break with Gavin Cooney, live from Poland, ahead of the Republic of Ireland's game with Ukraine tomorrow night. First, though, here's Nathan in conversation with a few of the Irish stars from Saturday's win over Scotland at the Aviva Stadium, starting with the man of the moment, Michael Obafemi. Congratulations. Go on, show us the man of the match award. You're not letting it go. This is a, this is a proud day. It is. Yeah, I mean, obviously, got the win. Uh, got a goal and assist. 
I, f- I feel like the fans fans are happy. I'm happy. The team's happy. So yeah, that's the main thing. I've been coming here for I think uh, what is it, 13 years since the stadium first opened. Uh, that's the best goal that's ever been scored in the stadium. Really? Oh, I think so. I don't mind it. <laughs> I'll take that. Um, Talk us through it. Uh, obviously, Troy played me the ball. Just thought I'd open up and just give give, give it a go. Do you know what I mean? And thankfully, it went <laughs> went in little chicken dipper. But yeah, it was good. Is that the sort of goal you score every day in training? No, I wouldn't say so. But to be fair, I did hit a similar one in training during the week. So. I kind of knew it was coming. Jason, it had been a tough week for the team with the results in the first two matches. There must be enormous satisfaction in the group as to how you responded tonight. Yeah, satisfaction, relief, I think. Um, yeah, it was just absolutely buzzing. I think, you know, obviously we know it's not good enough to, to start, you know, for this country, for, you know, our own expectations, the fans' expectations. And um, I think we put it right tonight, you know, it gives, it gives the fans something to cheer about. And um, they were unbelievable as well, the fans, to be honest. But, um you know the whole group, the, the staff and stuff, everyone behind behind the scenes, they all deserve deserve that victory. So, when criticism comes like it has over the last couple of days, groups can react in two different ways. Either there's a split and stories start coming out, or you can come together. It looked like from the way you were talking to each other, the way you reacted at the full time whistle, that there's a it, it's drawn you together as a group more than anything. Yeah, we've got listen, we've got great lads in there. You know, the staff are unbelievable people as well, and I think that that was key to it. You know, the staff. Like like I said before, the people behind the scenes, you know, keeping everyone happy, keeping everyone smiling, trying their best to kind of lift the spirits of the camp, and um, that was massive going into into today. But like I said, the fans as well from the off, you know, um, unbelievable. But I think we we gave them something to shout about as well with the the passion, the intensity, and um, just the overall commitment from from eleven players and everyone that came on. Just yeah, amazing. You played a big part in that passion and intensity and broke up a huge amount of play and did the right thing on the ball. You must be very personally satisfied with how you performed out there. Yeah, look, um, that was probably my second or third game at the Aviva and, um, you know, I've probably my, my biggest critic at times where um, I was happy enough with how i done tonight, you know. Um, obviously, I'm full in and sometimes I can maybe overdo it, but, um, you know, it means so much to me to, to play for Ireland and I'll always give 100%. Uh, and while you're the fine game, Michael Obafemi is the one who's going to take uh, most of the plaudits. Can you talk about his quality and the quality of the goal? And the, well, I think he wants the quality of the assist to be recognised as well. <laughs> Look, Mike, Mikey's an unbelievable lad, first and foremost. You know, he's he's an absolute character around the place, and he's joy. You know, he's always always got a smile on his face and making everyone laugh. So um, for him for him to get that today was unbelievable. He's got amazing quality, and you've seen that firsthand today. And him and Troy, I have to say, like unbelievable performances for both of them. So. Thanks, Jason. Cuivin, after a tough couple of matches, that felt big. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, no more than what the squad deserved. I think for the last two weeks, the effort and you know what we put in um, to, to get a big result today was was um, really big for us. And obviously, we're buzzing with the you know with scoring three goals in front of a, a packed out of Viva was you know it's a, it's a big day for us. There is a lot of young lads in this group, and the criticism when things don't go well can be quite severe. How's it been after the defeats to Armenia and the Ukraine, and trying to keep confidence levels high and trying to make sure you can come out and perform to your best on a night like this? Yeah, I think um, obviously it's difficult. We're obviously disappointed with the the previous results, but also I think the Ukraine game, especially, I think we you know we played quite well in that one. 
um, for a lot of it. So I think there was a lot of positives to take from that game, and you know, confidence confidence was high enough in the squad anyway. And we and we knew if we got a big result today, then we're still in this group. So that's what we did. It seems like there's a, a real togetherness as well. You could see on the full-time whistle, seven, eight of the players straight together in a huddle. That uh, rather than maybe there have been splits in the camp or anything like that when results don't go well, that actually there was a real bond there. Yeah, no. Listen, this this group is is, is a brilliant group. It's such a great group of lads. Um, you know, players and staff. Everyone puts in such a such a huge amount of effort on these trips. So when you get a big result like this, it's 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 really nice to celebrate all together. And you know, we are a really tight, close knit group. And I think that shows when results didn't go away the last few days that we're able to come back still and, and put in a big performance like today. Yeah, and listen, uh, there's such huge interest in the Irish team. When results don't go well, there'll be criticism. And does does that creep into the squad when you know questions start getting asked about Stephen again after you know a couple of bad results? Um, no, I think we we leave that really to the. I don't think we pay that much attention to it. Listen, we know in ourselves and the squad that we have, we, we know what the quality we have. So I think we don't pay too much attention to that. And um, yeah, we just want to do the best we can, and, and we did that. Today. You're nearly one of the out lads out there at this stage. Uh, I think Michael Obafemi was the oldest of the front three, and he just turned 22 earlier in the week. Can you talk about Obafemi and Parrot and their performances? And you've probably got a good view uh, from behind of Michael Obafemi's goal. Yeah, no, it's um, two two brilliant players. Um, it's a really exciting front two today for us, and thought they were both both excellent um, linking up for the for the second goal. And then Michael's strike obviously was one heck of a strike. The, the movement on it was was amazing, and now two great players. I'm not going to ask you to compare Nathan Collins to Virgil van Dijk, but you do play behind some of the best defenders in the world. He's a very young player. How good is he? Oh, no, really, really, really good player. Um, thought today he's been excellent. I think over the last three games he's been, been excellent, really fitted into that spot um, brilliantly, and I think no, I have nothing but praise for him, and obviously it's great to play in front of him when you know he's doing such a good job. OTB you're welcome back in the ad break there. You'll have heard Nathan in conversation with Quevin Kelleher, with Jason Malumby and with Michael Obafemi after the Republic of Ireland's 3-0 win against Scotland at the Aviva Stadium on Saturday. Uh, it is 8.17. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. And Gavin Cooney of The 42 is in Poland. Gavin, good morning to you. Morning, friends. How are you? Very well. So uh, are you in Woods or what is Woods like at this time of time of year? Uh, Woods was very nice yesterday, <laughs> and uh, very nice last night. It has to be said, uh, it was it was nice and warm when we landed yesterday. But I did wait to a message from I don't know, like I mean I don't know who it is, but it must be some local uh, local meter meter uh, weather service. Uh, warning: storms and strong winds expected today. Risk of power outages. Seek shelter. Uh, so right. you know, it's busy enough day today. So um, it seems that the it seems that the weather is turning here in Woods. But oh, and didn't the weather turn? In the very opposite direction for Stephen Kenny at the weekend. Well, this is the thing: is is positive weather needed for this? Have positive the storm clouds football? lifted. Yeah. Well, that is that is the question. Are we seeing sunnier skies over the Stephen Kenny rain? I mean, there's Nathan like scooping a number of intros in uh, in preview pieces in Parliament. <laughs> where are the positivity levels at at the moment, Gavin? Can uh, one swallow make a summer, or is this certainly a sense that you know the positivity that we saw at the end of last year and at the start of this year has been replicated finally once again in another big game? At the positive, <laughs> the positivity levels are wildly veering from one uh, from one end of the scale to the other, aren't they? Uh, I think the the atmosphere at that game was terrific before the game. You have to say there was no sign of any. Uh, kind of um, doubt about the manager or, or a lack of support team festering beforehand. 
and it was, you know, it was absolutely bouncing afterwards. You have to say it was a really strong attendance, just shy of 48,000. And, uh, you know, the atmosphere, the atmosphere was really, really good. And, you know, my, my kingdom for a time, when we talk about, uh, we analyze Ireland and talk about the team without uh, just making it a referendum on the manager, it seems like he's either, you know, he's either just proved that he's the man to the job forever or that he's, uh, he's forever and uh, got his back against the wall trying to prove uh, that he's still the man for the job and is fighting for his job. But um, That's the gig, uh, though, isn't it, Gav? Like, that has been the gig for every international manager. Uh, the way these international windows work now, they're very cramped, condensed. Uh, everybody's obsessed with the Premier League all season, and then suddenly you get two weeks, and we do a deep dive into uh, the entire psyche of Irish football, and the manager has to deal with that. And that's Martin O'Neill went through it, Mick McCarthy went through it, Giovanni Trapattoni went through it, Ian Barraclough's going through it now in Northern Ireland, Garth Southgate has been questioned over in England because they're not scoring any goals. Like This is the gig of the international match. We, do, we don't have a 40-game season to judge them on, so you've got to win games and you've got to win them quickly, and if you go through a couple of matches without a victory, suddenly everybody's asking questions about every part of the setup. Yeah, you are right. Of course, you're right. Um, I thought that maybe it was just like last year was such a protracted uh, battle <laughs> as regards his status, as regards his contract extension. I thought that maybe there was a some of those questions were closed by that contract extension, but they're obviously they're open. They're forever live questions. They'll never be fully answered because they were open two games uh, after back to back defeats in this Nations League campaign. And it's absolutely right to criticise him and the team. Like they were. They were limp performances, and I know there's been lots of uh, there's been lots of stats used and lots of excuses, etc., to, to talk about how cl- close Ireland were in the games. And yes, they were undone by uh, one like stunning long range goal, another kind of freakish goal, which Ireland probably could have defended better. But the problem is that they were, you know, they were leaving themselves subject to those narrow margins by not creating enough chances and not scoring enough goals. Um, that changed on Saturday, I think. You know, the most obvious thing to change is that Ireland scored first. You know, this is a team that once they get, they, I mean, they start snappily. They always start games with energy, particularly at home. The problem is if they don't get that goal in the first 15 or 20 minutes, then the energy saps away and the opponent grows in confidence and Ireland don't look like they can score. But the early goal arrived yesterday. And then from there, they, they closed it. They saw the game out really well, obviously uh, inspired by just moments of pure individual quality by Michael Obafemi. That's the really interesting thing as well is that it's a very small sample size but Ireland and their 1-0 lead seemed to rest pretty easily on their shoulders where historically if we're using all the trends that have come up time and time again it is that when Ireland go 1-0 up things tend to turn sour or nervous at very best very quickly. So is there a sort of freedom to, to what you're seeing at the moment that kind of showed that, that level of performance after going 1-0 up? I think so. I think also it's just, uh, it's just a matter of how the game goes. You just get more space. Ireland's Ireland, we saw in Armenia, Ireland are still struggling to break down teams who sit deep and deny them space. But obviously, when Ireland score first, the opponent has to come out, that leaves you a bit of space. And Ireland has serious pace in the team now that they didn't have uh, when, you know, in those games where, you know, we go, uh, Ireland would go ahead three after three minutes against Georgia or Denmark, whoever it was, and then they'd troop off the pitch, lamenting the fact that, if anything, we scored a little bit too early those Ireland teams didn't have the level of pace that this Ireland team has. So I think it's as much a matter of, um, it's as much a matter of space and, and how the game goes as it is some kind of intangible, like, like confidence and so forth. 
Possibly does it have something to do as well with the supposed quality of the opposition that Scotland came to Dublin thinking that they were favourites and they were favourites and they thought that they would win the game and that when you go 1-0 down to, uh, in inverted commas, an underdog, uh, you got to push up that little bit harder and you leave space in behind. Is, is that sort of one of the explaining features as to why some of Ireland under Stephen Kenny's performances, the best performances have come against teams of a higher quality? I, I do think it's down to that level of space. I do think it's also... Do you think maybe there's an element of, uh, if not, it's probably wrong to say that our, the teams underrate Ireland or, or just or just write them off. But I think there was an element of surprise last year. It's certainly in terms of um, when Ireland found that new way of playing with the three at the back. I think they did surprise teams like Portugal, maybe Serbia to a lesser extent, maybe Luxembourg away. Um, that I mean, and Ireland didn't have that element of surprise in the first, I thought anyway in the first couple of games in the Nations League. Everything was very similar to how it was last year and, and teams there's an element of, um, of teams figuring Ireland out but yes but sorry on Saturday there was a quite significant tactical change in that okay there was five personnel changes and all of those five players made a big impact you know they broke big energy to the team but they definitely staked a staked a claim to remain in the team but the tactical shift I think was probably was telling I think that was maybe the single biggest factor in it uh, in that the midfield two, which is usually Josh Cullen and, and Jeff Hendricks sit, sitting alongside each other, became a midfield three. It was still three at the back, uh, but there was two strikers up front and a midfield three of Cullen sitting and then Malumbi and Jason Knight ahead of them. It was just, you know, it was it was like a typical like four three three midfield, like that that triangle. Uh, but they they dropped off. They were compact. They were difficult to play uh, through without the ball. And it just brought so much energy with the ball. And, you know, by playing in that way, there's just more angles for passing. Obviously, the first goal came from a you know a classic Irish goal in that it was <laughs> it was eventually nudged over the line from a yard out on a set piece, but there was there was good Irish build-up play in before it. And I remember in Armenia, Chidozi Agbene had lamented Ireland's ball speed that they weren't moving the ball fast enough. Well, they did in this game, and it was helped by just the positions the players started in during uh, from the off I thought it was really good movement where Malumbi dropped off in midfield popped a first time pass out to Jason Knight on the left who gave the ball to McLean whose cross was excellent on his right foot and just before Abafemi could head it in Scott McKenna just nodded it behind for the corner from which Ireland scored so um, yeah I think that that midfield change was 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 very very significant I wonder how much Stephen Kenny has learned over the past week then in terms of team selection and you mentioned the predictability almost have of what Ireland were doing and how quickly that's turned from, you know, six, nine months ago, teams weren't quite expecting Ireland to have three at the back to very quickly the standard of coaching is such now across Europe that teams knew exactly what they were going to get over the past week with Armenia and Ukraine that Ireland are in a strong position in that there's not a huge difference in terms of quality from you know, the top players in the squad to the players, you know, 15th to 20th in the squad. So you can actually interchange that maybe he needs to do a bit more of that to make sure there's the freshness there and you're always trying a little bit something different because I think trying to pick a best Irish 11 now, like instantly I would go, like it's the 11 that started the last thing. You probably put Matt Doherty in it on the right side in, instead of Alan Brown, which is incredibly harsh on Alan Brown because he played well. But that, maybe Ireland don't even need to play three at the back all the time anymore that Stephen Kenny can mix and match a little bit and probably needs to do a bit more than that I did think that I have to say um, certainly after the Armenia in the, yeah certainly after the Armenia game you're thinking do you really need three at the back here because in Armenia Ireland's top passing combination was Nathan Collins to Shane Duffy and you're thinking well that's just keeping the ball for keeping the ball's sake like that's not going to worry the, the opposition whatsoever 
Um, and Kenny has Kenny has always talked about this need to be flexible, the need to be adaptable. Um, and I, you know, you didn't wonder would he change the system for this game and um, against Scotland. And he always said he always indicated that he wouldn't, but that there would be tactical uh, shifts and tweaks within it. And I think going to, I mean, the change here, not to bore your listeners too much, but the change is a three-four-three became a three-five-two against uh, against Scotland, effectively, where a front three became, you know, you, you you take out a striker, Callum Robinson, and put in a midfielder, Jason Knight. And Knight is so much energy. You know, there are times where, you know, on opposition kickouts, he would play almost as uh, to the left of a front three because Ireland pressed, Ireland pressed really well from those opposition kickouts and stopped the ball getting to, to Andy Robertson down Scotland's left. Uh, but the, the question as to whether Ireland really still needed three at the back in, in those games, you're thinking particularly Armenia, will go on. You know, talk to people, they'll say that, you know, you, you're not necessarily playing through the back, just uh, that doesn't mean it's necessary defensive. That gives you structure from which to attack. Um, maybe that's true. I don't think Shane Duffy's passing the ball well enough at the moment, I have mm. to say, to, uh, to, to offer that offer that kind of attacking bedrock uh, from, a, from a back three. Uh, and maybe it's not overly relevant to tomorrow night because you would expect Ukraine will dominate possession tomorrow and Ireland, I think, almost certainly will go with three at the back again despite uh, the injury problems that are there. But for say home against Armenia come September like Ireland don't have that player like there is nobody out there that we're crying out for that can play in that number 10 that can pick apart a deep lying defence so he's going to have to try something different so that Ireland can create opportunities against those kind of teams oh yeah I, I think so and that for all the jubilation uh, from the Scotland game I, that that is still the point I think that the team has to prove I think you come away from these Nations League uh, games what does the team have to prove one of them is if you start you start well, especially in home games, you don't score. Can you can you keep that going? Can you uh, you know find a breakthrough in the second half and not have the game just kind of creep away from you as it's been happening? And the second is just breaking breaking down those teams. You know, I was quoting the stats on your show a few days ago that Ireland under Kenny since they went through the back the three games in which Ireland have had their highest share of possession and their highest number of passes has been Luxembourg at home, Azerbaijan at home, and Armenia away. And they're the problem games, you know. I mean, had Ireland just won in Armenia, there's no talk of crisis at all. I mean, they're going to lose both of Ukraine and you shrug your shoulders at the end of it thinking, okay, well, that's fair enough. Ukraine are a much better team than Ireland. And that's where that's where the team continues to let themselves down. And there's often sometimes a little bit too much uh, kind of boosterism uh, after games. I have to say, I thought Kenny definitely tempered himself uh, after the Scotland game. He was invited to do a couple of victory laps, you know, you, have you answered your critics here, et cetera, et cetera, and said that, you know, personal vindication, that's that's not what I'm in it for, um, rightly enough. Uh, but it's because the team still has a good bit to prove. Well, that was quite striking, wasn't it? Because he was also asked at one stage about the potential of this group and you know, we saw it on Saturday, just how good can these guys become? And, you know, Kenny six months ago is probably going all out and saying listen we're not thinking about qualifying for your 2024 we're thinking about how far we can go in this competition <laughs> whereas actually yeah. he said you know I think he even acknowledged himself you know we've learned from uh, making grand statements uh, but they can be very good yeah <laughs> no, absolutely like, he's not one to manage expectations really is he I mean and that's the it goes back to last year when he said the target was to win the Nations League group this was in October this was before the draw was ever made and he stuck to it in fairness <laughs> I think you've uh, 
You know, you said that publicly. He he brought that. Well, up. You win tomorrow night. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you uh, complete, He brought that up completely unprompted, um, and he hasn't run back from it since, and he can't really. So he hasn't been one to manage expectations. But in fairness, and I don't mean this uh, disrespectfully, um, not refusing to manage expectations is one of the reasons he got the job in the first place. He was willing to talk about the players available and the team and the potential of it all in a way that was very, very different to the incumbent manager who was actually Martin O'Neill at the time um, and in a very different way to any other of the candidates who were out there. Um, so, I mean, not managing expectations is kind of <laughs> is kind of one of the reasons he got the job. But, uh, yeah, I, you're obviously getting a bit carried away, obviously, if you think, oh, <laughs> beat Frame now, you're looking at the, uh, the mathematics. Uh, you mentioned the first goal there and, the, um, you know, typical Irish goal. Could we have a moment's appreciation, please, this morning for James McLean? who gets a rougher time than most Irish sports people. He won his 93rd cap on Saturday evening at 33. An awful lot of people felt, oh, well, he won't be a Stephen Kenny type of figure. He'll be one of the first against the wall when Stephen Kenny comes in. We won't see James McLean again. Only Damien Duff, Steve Staunton, Kevin Kilban, John O'Shea, Shea Given and Robbie Keane have played more games for Ireland than James McLean. And he was brilliant on Saturday. And set pieces or something we almost turn our noses up at at this stage in Ireland. But with Howerhan not involved and Robbie Brady not in the squad anymore, Ireland have struggled hugely from set pieces over the past year, haven't looked anywhere near the threat that we have. And there's no shame in it. Like, look at what Liverpool do with set pieces, bringing specialist coaches in for all of those areas because you know the fine margins. And McLean's deliveries, uh, I think from open play and the energy he brought down the left-hand side and the experience and all that was top quality, but also uh, what he contributed from set pieces ended up being a game-changer because it's what gave Ireland that first goal, which I think, as you mentioned as well, that corner kick comes from the McLean cross off his right foot just before that in towards Obafemi so uh, he, he gets a huge amount of totally unnecessary stick I think at times James McLean uh, about his quality as much as anything else but there's still something there yeah I mean his delivery can't let him down and you start at the start of the game in a, against Scotland you think oh maybe it's going to be another of those games because Ireland started really well they pressed they won the ball back they drove to the end line and McLean, uh, McLean's shanked his cross over the crossbar. It was really quite dispiriting. But from there, he was outstanding. His, his delivery was pretty much on the money throughout, off both feet, the, the right-footed cross uh, that led to the corner, which he delivered for the goal. He was excellent on set pieces. There was another, I mean, there's another great cross for Scott Hogan um, uh, for the goal that looks like it probably are we crossed sure that, the line. Are we sure that didn't go in? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure that it didn't, I have to say. There's no, weirdly, there's no goal line technology. There is VAR. Uh, but we didn't, I don't know what camera angles they used because they didn't, you know, I thought they obviously didn't show it on the ground. I thought we might see it in the press box. But no, we were just told VAR check um, ongoing that didn't cross the line. But I'm, I'm struggling to think of a better McLean performance for Ireland, I have to say. And, it, it, and it, you know, you'd always bring that energy. I remember Vic McCarthy talking about, like, why do you pick James McLean? It's for something completely unpredictable, like, like that level of energy. And it, what, like, that unpredictability wasn't always... I always felt it wasn't always a good thing because you didn't know what he was going to do next, but that was, you know, that could sometimes be to your detriment. But that level of unpredictability was good uh, against Scotland for an Ireland team that had become predictable. Um, and they, uh, he just brought so much energy, so much pace, so much more, offered so much more than Enda Stevens did in the first, uh, in the first couple of games. His delivery was excellent. Um, he, I think he might be captain tomorrow night in Shane Duffy and John Egan's absence. Um, and I always thought that I always thought that Stevens was probably first choice ahead of McLean when everyone was fit. Uh, I wouldn't be so sure now. Mm. 
Good to see James McLean get universal appreciation this morning. Now let's have a look at the YouTube comments. MOC says, he's a headless chicken running around. Dan says, oh God, no, McLean, just because we have no options doesn't make him any good. Uh, another comment in here from Brown Dog 1986 he says the win against Scotland was bigger than you think I now live in Scotland and travelled over with my half Scottish 8 year old son who is neutral going into the game but is now all about Ireland and I think we have to read out some of uh, Tom English's piece on uh, the BBC Sport website who said watching Scotland getting eaten whole by a hungry Ireland team at the Aviva on Saturday summoned up an image from one of those David Attenborough programmes where the cocksure wild beast wanders into the wrong part of the Serengeti only to be pounced on by a ravenous lion so, Gavin, of the 11 ravenous lions who started ah. on uh, Saturday, everybody's fit. Let's pretend everybody's fit. How many are you changing for uh, a one-off European Championships qualifier, for example? Is How close to Stephen Kenny's best team is Saturday's 11? Matt Doherty definitely comes into it. Um, for McLean? For, no, no, on the right hand side. Right. Okay. Uh, for, it is cruel to drop. Alan Brown was so good, but you could bring him in... in infield for maybe Jason Malumbi if you're going to shift things up a bit. I think you might get, I think you might get Coleman in the team. Um, it maybe is a bit harsh to be talking about dropping Duffy, but his pa- it's just his passing, especially after the back has been poor throughout these. Uh, well, tomorrow these- night, tomorrow night could see be a, a big change for Irish football's future because the expectation I assume is that Collins will play in the centre of defence tomorrow night, and mm. the way he has played over these three games. It's hard to see Nathan Collins giving up that spot for the next few years. Oh yeah, Our, like I mean, it's quite exciting. Like Ireland's emerging depth at centre back is, is quite exciting. One of the reasons to play back three is to get all these guys into the team, you know. And you forget Andrew Amabamadeli, who's injured. Daryl Shea will come into the team. But it's, it's you know, it's only a year since we're talking about Daryl Shea is the next big thing. But Collins has been outstanding throughout these. He does, you know, it is future Ireland captain material. I have to say the way he carries himself off the pitch and on it. Uh, he's been. You know, he was the beacon. <laughs> he was the one beacon of shining light through the two uh, the misery of the two defeats. I was great, just great again at the weekend. You know, I mean, Scotland. You know, tried to save a bit of face after going three 0 down. He he cleared everything. He headed everything away, and he's just he's deceptively quick, isn't he? I mean, he's really mm. he's got a lot of paces, Nathan Collins. So uh, no, I mean, it's interesting if you can talk about. Let's go back to Owen's question. What is your you know? What is your best eleven? You're starting in a, in a world in a World Cup uh, World Cup qualifier, etc. Euros qualifier. Maybe maybe you get Coleman into the team at right centre back because of his leadership, because of his experience, because of his quality on the ball. I think it's been proven now that he can't play at right wing back. He's played it twice, um, or played at wing back twice away to Portugal, got injured uh, away to Armenia, got injured as well. So maybe you bring him in, and you've got Collins, Collins and Egan, Egan alongside him. Um, other than that, like, I don't know. It's hard. I mean, it's hard to to make a case to drop anyone who anyone else who played. Um, we haven't really talked about Obafemi yet. I mean, he's the he's the difference. You know, I mean, in fairness, we talk a lot about the manager's tactics, etc. But that level of individual quality is so telling because you know, if Obafemi, I mean, Obafemi, uh, he played that pass. I'm not sure many other people in the stadium saw that pass that he played for Parrot, and then outrageous third goal. And without those two virtuoso um, contributions by Abafemi, it's Ireland have gone 1-0 up from a set piece that was prodded in from a yard out. And maybe there's an element of clinging on from there. God, you hope he can stay fit. Yeah. 
because that's that, that's been the issue for him and you know he's nearly as wide as he is tall like he is built like an absolute tank and I was, I was shocked when he said he'd never scored from outside the box before when you look at the sheer uh, venom he could hit that with and the pace and the ferocity of it uh, you would think that's a, something he's going to be trying a lot more in the future but Obviously, uh, you know, he's a constant hamstring problems. He's a big doubt for tomorrow night. I know Stephen Kenny seemed to rule him out, but Obafemi afterwards was saying, I'm going to be knocking on the physio's door and whatever I need to do. But again, do you risk him uh, and the potential to aggravate it and sort of ruin his summer and ruin his preseason and all of that? Because I think as well, personality wise, he's someone the Irish supporters can really buy into as well. He just needs to get a run of games. Yeah, personality-wise, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was the Sky interview when he was asked. can't remember exactly how the question went, but it went along the lines of, well, Michael, things were terrible before this, but this is a good result. What's the difference? And he just went, me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, you know, he has been he has been completely bedeviled by injuries. I mean, this season at Swansea was the first time, <clears throat> excuse me, I think he put three 90 minutes back-to-back in his career, which is crazy, you know, and we... He talked about he talked about you know I've been four years waiting for this start of the Aviva having made his debut under Martin O'Neill, but it was very very few times in that period where you're you're screaming at the manager saying why haven't you picked Michael Obafemi because he's usually injured like he's just had a he's just such a difficult history of muscle injuries and hamstring injuries and those fast twitch muscles that that he relies on as a player I know he'll say there's a lot more to his game than just his pace we saw that there is a lot more to his game than just his pace, but it's still a huge part of his game. Um, so there, he has travelled for this game against Ukraine. Um, he's desperate to play. We'll see if he does. Uh, hopefully he's fit to play. I think the, the press conference isn't until later on, so we'll learn a bit more, uh, a little bit more then. The mood, mood music would seem to suggest that he probably is more likely not to play than play. But Nathan, you're completely correct. You can't, you can't risk him, you know, because... You know, you, you, uh, you know, setting it like a set, a hamstring setback for him is a lot more significant than it would be for any other player of the squad. We, we might revisit this question in a bit more depth later in the week, but that question about the best start in the 11 days, and do you go along with Gavin's assessment on it? Yeah, I think it's going to change all the time because, yeah. again, I don't think there's a huge difference. And, like, we're all operating in hindsight. Funny, David Connolly was on this day last week saying he, now, he was looking at it at a slightly different angle and he felt that Kenny should still be experimenting during the Nations League, which I don't think was really an option. But he felt that against Armenia, he should have gone with Will Keane and Mike Lobafemi up front and tried something different. But I don't think anybody was calling for Obafemi to start ahead of Armenia because who are you going to drop? Were you going to drop Chidozi Ogbene? were you going to drop Callum Robinson considering the form they had shown previously I don't think so so suddenly you know is Robinson out of the picture like does Ogbené get back in because you know Parrot and uh, Obafemi had such a such a good um, partnership up there so there's there's options and I think with young players the other thing and every coach in any sport of the world will tell you this young players are inconsistent and Let's see them do it back to back. Let's see a lot of these players follow up on it with no Shane Duffy, no John Egan, potentially no Michael Obafemi. Let's see some of these younger players actually put sustained performances together. A Jason Malumbi, who you know is so strong in breaking up play, hasn't had huge runs of games. They get a bit of a run of games with West Brom at the end of the season, but actually go and do it in two consecutive Irish performances. Likewise, Jason Knight. Show actually that this is our midfield three for the next two years, that Stephen Kenny is no choice. And we haven't really seen that from this group. 
we get very excited after one game and then it falls a little bit flat so I think that's the risk when you have so many young players on the pitch but like there's options there I don't think again like you could look at a back three and I think we all feel we might get to a back three in the next couple of years of Nathan Collins Darrell Shea and Andrew Omobamadele but then Jimmy Dunn has just come into the squad and Jimmy Dunn's been brilliant since he went to QPR so again uh, you know, we had him on the show last year again talk about an uh, uh, interesting personality like a guy you really want to do well so I think Stephen Kenny probably needs to look at players on the training ground, freshness, form, and maybe start having that a bigger impact than actually players who you know have just done well in the match and don't play again for three, four months. So I, I maybe not having a settled side is the best thing for Ireland over the next couple of years. Mm, for sure. Yeah. Go ahead. Go. Sorry, very briefly on Lino. When you are picking the team, I think it has to be dictated by match fitness and match minutes. I mean. One of the, the biggest thing that Ireland brought to that game against Scotland was just energy and conviction, and that was just so absent from from those previous games. I think you have to tailor your team your team selection according to who's playing regularly at club level, so they can bring that high energy. Because Ireland Ireland need to play with that high energy now. They can't. They're not. I don't think they're good enough. As we've seen in Armenia, they're not good enough for some kind of sterile domination at half pace to wear you down and will eventually win one nil. They're not good enough for that. They need to throw everything into games. So I think the you know, match fitness is a uh, is a very is a major factor. I think in team selection. Gavin, go uh, get some shelter from those storm clouds that are on the way for uh, both Woods yeah. and for Stephen Kenny's managerial future. I assume. <laughs> Thanks, Millie. After, after the week we've had, I'm glad that they're literal rather than metaphoric. Stuff, so. <laughs> Cheers, Gavin. Thank you. Gavin Cooney of the 42.ie on the line there from Poland. It is the Republic of Ireland against Ukraine tomorrow night in uh, the fourth Nations League game of this campaign. Right, we have the qualifiers draw to bring you in just a sec. There are so many idiots out there, so many spoofers. There's a lot of horse. I think he's a total spoofer. What do you mean a spoofer? He's a bullshit. Ah, no, I'm a, come on, don't, don't be, no, I'm not. Yes. No. <laughs> Uh, your time to shine bring us uh, the, the blockbuster news an OTB AM derby in the All-Ireland quarterfinals Kerry versus Mayo Galway versus Armagh Derry versus Clare and Cork against Dublin is the last day it's absolutely outrageous the way this draw was rigged that Mayo couldn't play Galway because <laughs> we played them six weeks ago so Galway, Armagh Derry, Clare one of those sides is going to end up in an All-Ireland final and Mayo have to beat Kerry, Dublin and then one of them what the hell it's going to be the greatest All-Ireland success of all time. A Mayo-Galway All-Ireland final? Take it. If Galway win the All-Ireland, I'm not coming to work for a week. Imagine if Galway sneak in and win a bloody other All-Ireland final after Mayo been the dominant force in Connacht for 10 years. It's sicken you. The thing is, I mean, you must be looking back in the league final now and say, thank God James Horn completely didn't show anything that day, as in just decided, lads. Incredible how they've managed to maintain that through the championship as well, of completely <laughs> not showing anything. Uh, listen, uh, as I said earlier, let's go after David Clifford in the first 10 minutes. Yeah. And do what? Whatever it takes. Like like what? Uh, Portugal Hora plus three more, I think, is what will be needed this time. Seems like a, a sound tactical... Wowzers. Kerry Mayo. Option. Are we go to Limerick? I think, I mean, it's probably too late at this point. Well, no, it's not too late. I mean, it's just not going to happen at this point. It'll obviously be Croke Park. It's just whether or not did they put him on the, the Saturday night, the blockbuster. Well, you can't get hotels in Dublin, Kenya at the moment. The That'll be a Sunday, four o'clock. No, it's got to be the blockbuster. It's Saturday night. I don't. Th- I think Dublin Cork will be the Saturday night. The, the two capitals go toe to toe. Ain't nobody want to see that. Nobody. Like this is, this yeah. is a bad. This feels like a bad draw for Dublin. They're going to be going into that Kerry game massively undercooked. 
under, uh, that I actually do think so. I think that that Dublin would have wanted somebody a bit stronger than that. Dublin will, I think, will be Cork handily. Derry Clare, like, is a is a great draw for both of those teams. I think Clare probably would have wanted Derry or Galway, obviously, and they couldn't have got. Um, they didn't want anybody on the other side of the draw. So that's a brilliant. Like Derry or Clare are going to be in an All Ireland semi final. It's a brilliant draw for those four counties. And yeah. Galway and Armagh as well is a, that that has the potential to be a real cracker. Um, but for those four teams on that side of the draw, I think Galway will be. I think Galway or Armagh will fancy themselves if they come out of that game. They'll have the feeling of having beaten probably one of the top sides in the country, and then Derry and Clare obviously would have had uh, keen rivalry in the league as well. So it's a very interesting draw. Who are you backing to get to the final from that side? Galway. You're backing Galway. Yeah. I think um, when I said it earlier in the show so I have to stick to my guns now I think Green O'Neill is a potential shot for player of the year if he came out on that side of the draw so I'm not like, actually going to go for him. The dynamic change is totally on that side of the draw because you know Galway have lived in the shadows of Mayo for the last decade they haven't won big games in Crow Park and now all of a sudden we're talking about Galway as the most likely team to find themselves in an All-Ireland final like that is an enormous amount of pressure suddenly mm-hmm. on these players I'm not saying they, they can't do it or they won't respond to it but now they're going in against that game against Armagh where they'll be the favourites and they would probably be the favourites if they win that as well in a semi-final. I think Derry will be favourites for that semi-final to be honest. Think? I, I think Derry are, I actually haven't checked the odds. I presume Derry are third favourites for the All-Ireland. Um, but but Derry, I, Derry's loss to Galway in the league was they just fell apart and, mm. and that was a game basically where promotion was on the line. Was that the game where Shane McGuigan got sent off? He was He missed that game through suspension I think. Yeah. Galway scored four goals that day and ran through them. I just think Galway have that bit of a, a, I know the X factor with their forwards like Finnerty has found form. Walsh is a match winner. Mm. Comer, when those guys hit Crow Park, I think with the if they play with a bit of confidence, they could really light it up. And Galway have a tradition, don't they, Nathan? Wasn't it ninety eight where they came from nowhere to win that All Ireland? Oh, yeah. After Mayo in ninety six and ninety seven, so <laughs> they have that bit of a swagger. They have that bit of a swagger if they do get to Crow Park and perform. So that's why I'm backing them to get the All Ireland. But I think Kerry and Dublin are a long way ahead of of anybody else, to be honest. Yeah, well, we will see. It's a tasty it's, draw, isn't it? it? Is. Yeah, there's a, a couple like of good Claire, ones. Derry against Clare. Again, like Derry aren't used to being in this position. No, absolutely. And the, Clare yeah. on the crest of a wave now after a couple of wins. You know, that was a smashing result for them on Saturday, wasn't it? And to get that in Crow Park as well, even though there wasn't a big crowd there, but just to have that game in Crow Park under the belt, I think, might be significant for Clare too. Um, I was kind of looking through it yesterday about, you know, the... the the lack of success of provincial beaten finalists in the back door and 2010 they all got beaten uh, after losing their provincial finals that happened again yesterday for the first time since 2010 and I think that was a factor in the 2010 quarterfinal washout where everybody coming into those quarterfinals were on a massive run of momentum because they just won a couple of games uh, in a row getting into that place you'll have the same situation for this weekend and I do think there's a chance for maybe two or three of those teams who are coming in from the back door to actually win those games. I don't think we'll get a washout this year, to be honest. I think it'll be a shock if both Dublin and Derry happened to lose those games. Mm. But still, you're watching all four of those games. And I think we got four very good games at the weekend. And there has been a lot said about the, the split season and the compression of this year. I think was it was it Oshin said in the the conversation with, with Kieran Donaghy yesterday referring to it as as June madness. Like that's what it is now. This is these fixtures are all packed together between both codes. I'm pretty optimistic that we're going to get a few great weekends of hurling and football, and I like that fixture list. I'd agree. Uh, is that it's the disrespectful game? to Mayo? What your your like of that fixture list? 
bit of, bit of arrogance there, Owen. As a neutral. As a neutral, Kerry <laughs> Mayo. Listen, you've been a neutral since a the day attached. you walked into this office. Uh, there's always been something going on. There's always been something going on. I'm, I'm just really appreciative of the great neutral ties that we've got. Um, you're just pissed off at all of this, really. No, no, it's fine. Uh, maybe this is exactly what wakes Mayo up from their slumber. That's what I was going to say. Is this the game that gets them gets them back into the it's more. It's more... If you win that game and then you have to play Dublin straight afterwards, well, but again, maybe maybe you're then have a little bit of momentum. And sure, Mayo did beat Dublin in the semi final last year. I just always still go back to the 2017 game against Kerry, where Mayo ripped them apart and twice somehow mm. somehow take some confidence. But that's a, a different Mayo. That's what five years ago now. So okay, I'm fine with this. Carl, what else is going on? Well, let's uh, just recap last night's golf. Rory McIlroy successfully defending the Canadian Open title. The uh, down native finished with a final round of 62 to finish on 19 under par. That was two shots better than Tony Fina, who finished in second. McIlroy won the last staging of the event in 2019. Shane Lowry finished on nine under par. That was in a tie for 10th. Just to recap that quarterfinal draw in the All-Ireland Football Championship. Kerry against Mayo, Galway versus Armagh. Derry against Clare and Cork against Dublin. That draw has just been made. Uh, Armagh beating Donegal yesterday by 317 to 16 points Cork were 218 to 116 winners over Limerick Liverpool now on the brink of uh, signing striker Darwin Nunez from Benfica the uh, Benfica have confirmed in a statement this morning that a deal has been signed with a 75 million euro fee plus add-ons which will take the package up to 100 million euros and the 22 year old is expected to have his medical today ahead of official confirmation of the move on the Republic of Ireland front Shane Duffy and John Egan will both miss tomorrow's Nations League game with Ukraine Duffy is suspended Egan has left the squad due to family reasons. QPR defender Jimmy Dunn has been called in as cover by manager Stephen Kenny. There are a couple of games tonight in the Nations League to watch out for in League A. It's a repeat of the 2018 World Cup final. France play host to Croatia. Elsewhere, Austria take on Denmark and one game in League B. Iceland take on uh, Israel and that kicks off at a quarter to eight Irish time. In swimming, Roshini Rian claimed a bronze medal on the opening day of the 2022 World Para Swimming Championships yesterday. The Limerick native produced a brilliant performance in her st- spot on the S13 100 metre butterfly podium by just a quarter of a second and she's back in the pool today as she vies for another medal in the SB13 100 metre backstroke decider and finally there's racing this evening at Kilbegan where the first is off at half past five. Alright Carl, good stuff. Just to tell you OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day and just a reminder as well uh, you can join us at the Silken Thomas Kildare Town on June 21st as we'll be looking ahead to the Dubai Duty Free Irish Derby Festival at the Curra Racecourse we'll be chatting to Irish Derby legends Michael Canan, Johnny Murta and Jamie Heffernan for an in-depth Irish Derby discussion and analysis and what it takes from horse uh, and jockey to win the iconic race you can see otbsports.com forward slash events and our social channels to register just going to run through some of the back pages before we wrap up here uh, the Irish Times first up photograph there of uh, Stephen Sheridan scoring the third goal for Armagh yesterday in that win over Donegal in the back door so Armagh basically leading the way on a, a lot of the sports sections this morning Orange Crush is the headline on the Irish Independent Sports section McGinney's men dish out Donegal drubbing and look like the team none of the big guns will want to face and uh, it is Galway 
who they are going to be facing in the All-Ireland quarterfinals. Uh, the Herald goes with potential. Has Kenny excited? Ireland manager looking forward to Ukraine clash despite having a weakened squad. Uh, a couple of the other ones here. The Guardian goes with World Cup warning. Southgate tells United players they have a lot to do for Qatar. And Nunez to have medical today for €100 million Euro Liverpool deal as you've just been hearing. Um, let's just bring you through some of the rest of the Irish back pages. Uh, Orange Crush is the back of the Irish Daily Mail. Slick Armagh marching on to Croke Park. Brown says we need to kick on from Scott's win. That's Alan Brown speaking to the media in the aftermath of Saturday. All hands on deck, meanwhile, is the back of the Irish Mirror. Dara answers defensive SOS as Kenny plans without Egan and Duffy. Dara Lenehan may be starting for the Republic of Ireland tomorrow night. Uh, and back of the sun is loads to be excited about. Kenny upbeat ahead of Ukraine rematch and Rian's a crowd pleaser is the headline on Armagh. Only um, really works if you don't pronounce... Luds in the correct manner. Yeah, well, they did leave out the um, the accents on it, yeah. so uh, I uh, I assumed that I pronounced that correctly. But uh, willing to change that to, to would to be excited about, which I mean, just you know, uh, back of the Irish Daily Star is Clockwork Orange. Donahue says our Armagh fans will take over Crow Park. His rallying cry. Are you? 100% sure there'll be plenty of orange in Dublin for that weekend whatever that fixture gets uh, set for that Galway Armagh one possibly the pick of the fixtures in the All-Ireland quarterfinals right it is at 8.54 you're with us here on OTBAM we'll be chatting to Alan Quinlan in just a sec there are so many idiots out there so many spoofers there's a lot of horse I think he's a total spoofer. What do you mean a spoofer? He's a bullshit. Ah, no, Emma, come on, don't, don't be... No, I'm not. Yes. No. All right, a very, very interesting weekend in the URC, to say the least. On Friday night in the first semi-final, Leinster were beaten 27 points to 26 at home by the Bulls. And then on Saturday, Ulster were beaten in heartbreaking fashion on a 17 points to 15 scoreline by the Stormers. It means we will have an all-South Africa URC final. It'll be the Stormers against the Bulls. Alan Quinlan is with us on the line. Alan, good morning. Morning, Owen. How are you? A, a bad weekend for the Irish provinces, I want to say, but a positive weekend for the URC in the long run, it seems. Um, yeah, if you want to look at it like that, I suppose um, the South Africans obviously started the tournament very slowly and, um, you know, particularly in the first four or five games, they, they had a lot of losses and uh, we weren't sure where they were going to end up. I think um, there's three, three South African teams now in the Champions Cup next year and Two of them are in the final, which uh, we probably didn't we didn't see coming, particularly at the weekend. Um, you know, everybody thought that Leinster would win, and probably Stormers would beat Ulster. Um, but both results have have gone the other way. I think um, I think Ulster looked like they were going to win the game, hanging on for dear life at the end, but conceded that late try, and and obviously what happened oh. Friday night was. Um, was was a shock against the Bulls for Leinster. It felt after Leinster were beaten on Friday night that this was a really brilliant opportunity for Ulster to get some silverware, that they would be in a really good shot if they could get over the semi-final to actually win in Belfast uh, and get over the line with, with a trophy that the Ulster fans have been crying out for for so long. Like that second half showing where they don't score a single point, they're a man up for uh, the closing stages of the game like that will surely have to go down as a desperately desperately disappointing 40 minutes for, for Ulster Rugby yeah I think they, they you know the Stormer started well scored two tries and uh, you, you kind of feared the worst for Ulster um, but then they got 
you know, they they got two great great tries themselves. I think, look, obviously there was there was a little bit of, of a doubt about the the pass for Balakun for the for the first try, but um, he did brilliantly then with the offload for Stuart Moore for the second. And you think they're right back in the game. Cooney kicks the penalty just before half time. You think um, they're in a great position, but I think. They didn't manage the game as well as they, they probably should have in the second half. Um, didn't have enough. Probably kicked the ball a little bit too much. I know there was talks of, uh, you know, they, they didn't have enough, an, enough territory in that second half, but they had their opportunities and just just couldn't get over the line and, and stretch the lead a little bit, I, I thought. And you could say the same for Leinster. They had kickable penalties and they probably should have had shots at goal and they kept going for the corner and, and and trying to score them all tries, but hindsight's a great thing. Um, they stole a line out, I think, on with a couple of minutes to go that the Stormers had and in 78 minutes. Um, they stole a, a Stormers line out. They were close to the, the Ulster line and um, I thought that was it. That was the game for Ulster, but they probably should have just held on to the ball and tried to, to, to hold on to it. They kicked it away again. Stormers got back and you know, inevitably in the end they scored. I think it was 84th or 85th minute. Um, it was heartbreaking in the end. It's hard to say that Ulster should have won the game. They certainly could have won the game. But you think if they were coming to Bel- back home to Belfast to play a final, that they they would have been the team that probably would have really, certainly would have been favourites to, to lift the trophy. And it's a massive opportunity lost. Um a little bit like Munster, you know, long time since they won a trophy. It's 16 years. It's longer for, for Ulster and um, they've come up short again. Quinny, can you talk about what should happen there then on 78 minutes when Ulster win that line out? Who are you looking for in that position to make the big decisions? And is that what they were missing? Uh, a bit of leadership then? Is that just experience? Is it something you learn from quite quickly? It's difficult, Nathan. You know, if you're, if you, if you're an Ulster fan or an Ulster player... Um, there's a nervous excitement when you win that turnover. Um, it's easy to say for me, looking back, um, you know, maybe hold on to the ball there and just pick and go. Um, it's it's a long two minutes. I always think back to the European final in 2008. We started picking and going monster in about the 72nd or third minute. It was, it was much too early. But with two minutes to go... Um, there's always a danger you're going to give away a penalty and you're going to do something wrong there. But I think it's down to leadership. It's down to experience, composure, Nathan. And uh, they probably didn't have that. If you're going to kick the ball, ideally you try and get it to your to your out half and he kicks long up the field or find the touch, touch finder outside, you know, down towards the halfway line or something. But they kicked it down there and it didn't go out. Stormers come back and attack again. Um, particularly when you're after doing something so good by stealing that line out, um, it's it's deflating for the opposition. So I think it's down to a little bit of leadership and, and composure that they lacked at times in that second half, not just at the end of the game, but in, in the second half. Uh, again, the bench situation, you could say it for both, both Leinster and Ulster, um, the impact off the bench and, and the ability for the both sets of coaches to use players off the bench uh, probably didn't help, but... They were a whisker away, weren't they, Ulster, and just lacked that little bit of control right at the end. 
that point on the bench is a good place to kick off on Leinster. Is Leinster's depth just not what we thought it was? Is it very position specific? Or what's your read on, on the backup players that aren't making the starting 15 for Leinster at the moment? Well, you know, obviously they have a huge amount of uh, number of players. They used over 60 players in the league and maybe that's something that's come against them a little bit right at the end of both competitions that there was so much rotation. Um, I heard Jake White speaking about his um, continuity and selection in the last kind of three, four months with his team. Uh, very similar team, small tweaks here and there, but um, for Leinster, you know, when Keane Healy comes on with two minutes to go, Sean Cronin didn't come on. Uh, Ross Maloney came on late in the game as well. Um, I think it's it's you know it's Michael Alatoa came on obviously for for uh, for for Tyke Furlong and sixty fifth or something minute, but I just think it's um, it's having that ability to to make changes. Uh, particularly when game, a game is not going well. And again, it's new territory, isn't it, for, for Leinster, you know, being under this sort, this sort of pressure, the similarities with the La Rochelle game. Um, for Ulster, you know, Tom O'Toole is still on the field in the 80th minute, under, had, had a brilliant game, but it's just, I suppose, making some changes before that. Ulster looked out on their feet at the end and they looked really fatigued. So... Um, you know, ideally you have great depth and you can bring on four or five internationals. Um, Leinster's depth probably in some specific positions is is not as strong as maybe we think. Mm. Um, loads of really good young players, but um, maybe that's something that came against them right at the end, uh, particularly in the type of game that they played against the Bulls. And give, given the resources that Leinster have, that'll be a source of particular disappointment. Uh, on a stylistic level then, did Ronan O'Gara and Jake White go about this thing in exactly the same way? Or what did you see in terms of comparing the two big defeats for Leinster? Um, well, something that was very obvious in both games was was the pressure and the line speed. Now, I, I really thought, um, I know there was a few people questioned um, uh, the possibility of sin bins in the La Rochelle game and um, some of the penalties that, that La Rochelle were penalised for. I thought there were some silly penalties. I said it on Friday to Ronan. Um, and obviously, if he lost the game and La Rochelle lost the game, he would have been frustrated with some of those penalties. I think it flipped right over, right to the end of the game in La Rochelle, where Leinster were the ones giving away the penalties. Um, but on Friday night, I just thought that, um, you know, the similarities were the line speed, the pressure, um, not allowing Leinster any sort of time on the ball. I didn't think the Bulls could do that um, but it's amazing in sport when you get ahead and when you get a little bit of confidence and you get a feel that, you know, they were 17-7 up at one stage um, and they believed they were in the game. And that's exactly what you want to do if you're playing Leinster. I've said it so many times in Munster, have played them really in the last number of years. If Munster can stay in the game, then you can ask questions, uh, try and get a little bit of doubt in the opposition. But again, it was just one of those night zone where just things went wrong for them. Uh, uncharacteristic knock-ons, timing of the passes, the execution. Um, when uh, when uh, I think when Rory Lockin scores that try in the 68th or 69th minute, I think everybody is feeling that you know that's it. It's it's they're just going to 
get the next score, win the game and get out of here and, you know, dust themselves down for a final. But you have to give massive credit to the Bulls. I think they put so much pressure. I thought some of the refereeing decisions the other night against Leinster were really poor. I thought the, the Bulls were offside a little bit. And exactly what you want to do, you're kind of pushing. And and again, the similarity to La Rochelle, you're, you're, you're right on the edge, aren't you? Trying to get off the line really quickly because if you allow Leinster play, well, they can really punish you. So, um, they'll be frustrated when they look back at some of the decisions. Um, the breakdown obviously was an issue again. So um, it's just probably um, it's easy. It's not easy pinpoint what what went wrong. And I think the obvious thing is we we all start talking about the power and the physicality. But I just think Leinster are probably not used to being tested like this. Um, how do they fix the that, season. Quinny? Because, you know, Leo Cullen said, was on about the squeeze game and it not being uh, in their DNA with the way Leinster are playing. It's not because we see them, we watch them every Friday night. They're a great watch. They score lots of tries. But these two matches, they don't face that type of power too often. Now, maybe they will face it a lot more with the South African sides coming in. But the fact the South African sides are coming into the Champions Cup as well, like, does this need to be a summer of real soul searching at Leinster and a the possibility of, of looking to change their DNA? No, I don't think so. I think they just look... In both games, um, Nathan, it's very, very fine margins and it's incredible how the momentum just shifts when, when something goes wrong. I think what they do need to understand and learn when you're such a dominant team throughout most of the season and the expectation is so high. So everybody said Leinster would beat La Rochelle. Everybody said... Lenzo will beat the Bulls. Um, it's about probably just understanding that, that um, you're going to face a ferocious kind of intensity. It's hard to replicate that. So to answer your question, it's very difficult for them because um, if you don't face that opposition throughout the year, if you if you go right back to the first game, you know, Leinster beat the Bulls 31-3 in the Aviva. I think it was the first game up. Um, it's hard to... You know, maybe I think that they, they, you know, you learn harsh lessons along the way, and maybe they'd be better for that going forward. I know people have pinpointed and said, "Well, last year La Rochelle beat them in the semi-final; they should have known better this time." Very small margins in both games. I think uh, Johnny Sexton was probably key to both games as well. A little bit of control, decision making when they're when they're ahead. Um, they're not usually chasing a game either. They're a very, very dangerous side. And I think that was the key the other night. Jake White even said it, that, you know, if Leinster get ahead of you, they're a very hard team to reel in. So 95% of their decision-making is is always very, very good. But I just think, um, I'm not sure how you learn and replicate that sort of intensity. Maybe you do it in training more and um, have more kind of com- com- confined spaces to, to deal with that intensity. Um, but it's something that they have to a little bit of soul searching has to go on now and they've got to look um, but again well, what, what know, about most the, teams would love to be in that position wouldn't they what about, what about the intensity you know, that the those Leinster players who are who are test internationals who, who are Lions players have experienced over the last couple of years they're as experienced if not more experienced than all the players that they're coming up against like it's not like they were up against a team of Springboks the other night and I mean we, we constantly comment on Leinster and Ireland being so similar so is that a real concern then for, for the national team if it feels that Leinster are, are somewhat undercooked going into these big powerful games well, what's a concern for a national team, and it's pretty regular, uh, something we talk about is, is um, you know, if you're playing against, 
if you're going to play in the All Blacks, the All Blacks are going to play against Ireland. Well, one of the first things they're going to talk about is the being aggressive, physical, being in their faces, trying to take them on and turn it into an arm wrestle and really win those collisions. So um, it's trying to uh, trying to deal with that pressure and power. So, but it is a concern. I think it is a concern, and you know, you'd love to have two locks in the second row, 120 kilos. Uh, but again, it's you've got to work with what you have, and, and we had those conversations regularly in the last number of years when we played England, when we played New Zealand at the World Cup. Um, we've got to find a different way, and 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 probably just cut your claw according to your measure. You can't just invent those. You know, Lens from Jason Jenkins signed for next year. He's obviously a very very big man. They're, they're bringing him in is he's bringing him in for a reason. Um, Joe McCarthy is a very physical and powerful player who's still very young he brings a lot of that power and physicality that you don't naturally get um, it is a concern on yeah for sure but um, Quinny, I, uh, one of the same- I was going to say Andy Farrell names a squad on Wednesday give us a bolter a bolter it's, it's difficult I was talking Nathan on Friday about it um, I think Jimmy O'Brien should go Um I think he's been he's been brilliant for Leinster this season. Very very consistent. Um, it's hard to pick too many bolters out of this. I think Ross Bar- Ross Maloney could go given his performances uh, up to that that, that final with with, with Leinster. Um, I'd love to see Jordan Larmer back in the mix. I think even when he touched the ball a few times the other night, he looks so so dangerous as well. But um, it's hard. Nathan Doak maybe um, he's someone that that. Um, has incredible talent for Ulster, but uh, it's hard to kind of pluck someone out of the blue. And I don't know if there will be um, too many boulders in this squad. Alan Quinlan, good stuff. Thanks, Millie, for being with us. Cheers, lads. Thanks. Cheers, Alan Quinlan there on the line. It is 10 past nine. You're with us here on OTBAM, which is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Here's what we've got coming up on OTB Sports Radio throughout today. One o'clock is OTB Gold. Kerry propaganda starting already. We're going to have Kerry legends every day for the next two weeks. Unbelievable. The man who haunts your dreams. Splunk uh, at uh, three o'clock. Splunk Sport. Classic Game Club is uh, tip against Kilkenny 2014. That's from four o'clock. And Jason Sherlock is OTB Gold from six and off the ball then live on your radio from 7 o'clock tonight. You can follow off the ball across all our social channels. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel and be sure to download the OTB Sports app for the latest and best sports content and analysis. We are back after ads chatting football with Anthony Miles. OTB AM. Nine, uh, 12 minutes past nine. You're with us here on OTB AM. The quarterfinal draw for the All-Ireland Football Championship has happened. It is Kerry against Mayo, Galway against Armagh, Dublin against Cork, Derry against Clare. Tasty enough draw to say the least. We'll uh, obviously touch on that Kerry Mayo clash in just a moment, but I think our are the story of the morning after yesterday's win. They're on all the back pages. Clockwork Orange is what it says in the back of the Irish Daily Star. They will be absolutely thrilled to have avoided the Kerry Dublin side of the draw, I'm sure, because that looked like we're seeing uh, momentum building in a side that could go all the way to an All-Ireland final here. Yeah, they were um, massively impressive. Um, it's funny, you know, when you play Donegal, uh, I think... So first fifteen twenty minutes of the game, Donegal actually looked pretty good. You know, well in control. Armagh were kind of stuttering along a little bit. Bar of course for, for for the brilliant goal in the first minute. Um, 
But Donegal are a weird team um, in the sense of once they go behind, they have no plan B. You know, the plan B is okay. They stick Murphy in on, in full forward, but at that stage, you know, Armagh were ready for that. Um, so, you know, once Armagh managed to get their nose in front at that vital period around the twenty fifth, twenty sixth minute. There was no looking back. Like really, they 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 wanted a counter. You know, they they were very impressive, impressive from both um, an offensive attacking point of view and a defensive point of view. Fellas know their roles. Um, great communication on the pitch. Not afraid to mix it up. Long ball, short ball, probing. You know, guys willing to take on shots. And then they've got some players who are just absolutely imperious at the moment. Like O'Neill is just saying, "Listen, give me the ball." It's funny watching them. And there was a little segue where he kind of brushes past Murphy after kicking one of his scores and Murphy kind of looks at him as if to say well that's what I was able to do uh, and I'm not able to do it anymore you know because O'Neill was literally going I'll catch it I'll kick it <laughs> I'll do whatever you want I'll tackle back and he was just outstanding and when you have a player in that kind of form who's been in that form all year like you remember what he was like against Dublin in the league um, it's just it it breeds massive confidence around the squad around the rest of the players and they know that if if, if, if when he's needed and when they need to get a score he's a guy who'll, who'll, who'll take, put his hand up and get that score for you um, and you can see it like I've never seen Stephen Campbell play as well as he's been playing Consistently, you know, he's a guy who might have come on and lasted 25, 30, 40 minutes. He often got the shepherd's hook like a, on, on numerous occasions, and you could see he'd be cutting a kind of a frustrated figure. Whereas now he's, you know, he's playing with massive confidence. Um, as I say, taking shots on that maybe, you know, where you where you need that confidence, you know, to take those shots on, and he's doing that. So, McGinney and the rest of the, the management team there have, have, have obviously instilled a great belief in them, um, and they're a very, very dangerous opposition now, um, because Crow Park, I think, will, I know Donaghy mentioned it, but Crow Park will suit them. The, 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 the vast expanses will suit their kicking game. I think they'll be able to actually pull Galway apart um, and I'm not convinced of Galway I'm not, I wasn't convinced of Roscommon um, and that showed up at the weekend and I'm not really convinced of Connacht I wasn't convinced of Mayo at the weekend either so you know I think I think Armagh will be licking their lips at this one Yeah they must be waking up incredibly excited because when you look at the four teams on that side of the draw Armagh are actually the ones who've been in an All-Ireland final most recently uh, like this is a huge opportunity so is, is there a balance now of actually for the management team in terms of hype and excitement of you know you want to w- ride that wave of momentum that they have from the couple of weeks and the victories they've had over the last couple of weeks uh, and how you make sure that actually you don't start looking a little bit too far ahead which I'm sure all four of those counties are thinking like one of us is going to end up in an All-Ireland final here Yeah there's a balancing act absolutely Nathan and, and I think they'll have to they'll do a job of trying to bring them back down to earth but at the same time what you want to do is say listen this is what you can do mm. um, you don't want to take too much confidence from them um, and you don't want to kind of you know burst the bubble too much you want to instill the confidence into them you want to say this is what you can do but it's built on a certain number of building blocks like it's funny after the the, the, the last game I think again Donaghy was interviewed uh, as he seems to be the person who goes out there in front of the media but anyway he, he mentioned that uh, Kieran McGinney got back to basics he got back to literally hard work you know so I'd say the build up to that game was um, you know it's 15 on 15 and we're going to outwork our, our opposite man there was no there was no kind of fancy stuff there was no you know like of course they had patterns during the game but I'd say he literally just wanted a performance as regards energy intensity work rate 
and if they were getting kind of 8 or 9 out of 10 at that level well then the rest would look after itself and I'd say he's he's instilled that in them now and I'd say that's kind of like as I said a basis for them going forward because I think he knows once the talent or, the, or sorry once the once the work rate and once the um intensity is there once the intent is there that the that the the talent will show true which it has been doing it'll obviously be a fascinating tactical battle in that one and also how Armagh just approach it from minute to minute like early in the game yesterday and the McGinley was saying in, in co-commentary you know that's why you drop off a kick out because Patton was just going long finding his man and you say there earlier on that Michael Murphy was looking at Reno O'Neill like that's the sort of stuff I used to be able to do it looked like it was old school Michael Murphy for the, for the opening quarter of the game yesterday so yeah. what did Armad do that forced Patton to go short and uh, essentially the whole thing blew up in their face as a result of those kickouts changing right? Yeah like <laughs> You know, people will look, and we'll get onto the Kildare Mayo game, and I'm sure in a, in a minute. There's an awful lot of pressure is is heaped on the kick out at the moment, and an awful lot of pressure is obviously heaped on the goalkeeper because you know he's controlling it per se. But you know, the control of the kick out is only so good as, and the accuracy and 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 I suppose the completion of the kick out is only so good as the outfield movement and the outfield players. You know, when you look at Evan Comerford for Dublin, he very rarely has to hit a kick out into a bunch of players. He generally generally just pops a kick out to a man who invariably in, in are kind of going how, how has that guy got so much space um, you know there's not an occasion where the player is generally under pressure um, but yesterday uh, in, in, in a number of games over the weekend but especially on Patton's one he kicked a, a short kick out to a guy who was coming directly at him which is always a very very tricky thing to do because he has no angle the, the defender he's literally running back at you so his thing is he has to first of all gather the ball which they didn't do he, the, if you remember the, the second one he spilled the ball and left the opportunity but if you have your back to the play i.e. you're facing the goalkeeper you don't know necessarily what's coming left or right of you as soon as you turn you get hit um, and you're you're up for grabs so uh, from a, from an armour point of view they executed it perfectly perfectly they just they literally saw him they knew the opportunity they said right we squeeze in here as soon as he turns we, we nab him we tried to turn him over and we put pressure on him if he had gone back to Patton they would have been right on Patton as well um, the kind of the strange thing was I suppose that, that he did it a second time you know after getting away with the first one I would have just said right, I'm putting this down I'm just going 60-70 metres with this because we got out of jail on that one so let's just get it out of here um, and, and that was the one that I think caused obviously the angst probably the players necessarily themselves weren't really expecting it because I can't remember who fumbled it but I think it was a full back who came running in at him um, but yeah a little bit of a, a, a kind of a, it, it's small margins you know but as I say the problem wasn't even necessarily that the problem was Donegal they can't change their pattern. You know, when they go behind, they're kind of consistently doing the slow build-up play. They're looking for the runners. And and you were kind of just saying, listen, they're beating Docket. You know, after 25, like literally after that goal and not very long after, you were just saying, there's no way they're getting back into this game because they don't have that forward prowess anymore. McBurty is struggling. Um, Could they refine that, though, is, is the thing? Because it seems that there's like a really good young generation of footballer there. But if they want to get over the line one more time, they kind of need to do it with McBurty and Murphy still playing. And it feels like the the, the are, like I mean it feels like the time might be up at this point but there could there be one last squeeze next season with there could it, be but, but I think they need to alter their um, their style of play yeah like the game has moved on now I think and risk takers more generally more often than not by taking a risk in the game you, you get you get fruition you you get the result like I mean the, so the first the very first goal for Amah 
was a risk. You know, most fellas would have just taken that ball on a short little pass, or as we've seen in the past, hold on to possession, go backwards with a kick. Whereas there were like the intent was there straight away. That wasn't him. Just he just looked up. He knew. He said, "Right, if we get this ball, probably even from the throw up without a free, we're going in there first time." And you can see that now in lots of teams. If you watch that intent, even from throw ups, the way fellas win it, they don't go back anymore. They try to go forward. So you can see teams that are taking risks. Um, calculated risks of a, of a session. They're not just pinging balls from all over the place, but they're doing it at times. And it happened in the, in the, in the Calaire-Mayo game a few times. Remember one where Flynn caught the ball in? It was a lovely floated pass into him. I think the game has to... I don't see that from Donegal uh, at all. And it's not like they don't have the players, but I just think they're hamstrung massively by the pattern that they play in. Um, and it needs to change for them to be successful again. It certainly seems that way. You mentioned... Kildare, you mentioned Mayo there. It's yeah. like, Mayo. What, what is Mayo's pattern of play? <laughs> <laughs> well, like I mean, it's 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 you know what? They're an amazing team. Um, I know people are heaping praise on, on on Keegan, and rightly so. But you know, Mullen was absolutely, I thought, was just as imperious. Like they're they're, they're the funniest team to watch attack because their full back line attack more than their half forward line attack you know the 2-3-4 generally bypass the midfield and bypass the half forward line and if you look at any of them even the goal you know I think O'Hara had come on and O'Hara slips the pass into Mullen right so and not far from around there Hessian is around like they're all in around that space and actually they had to do it because the forwards for Mayo were struggling to be honest um, it was a very strange game I think Kildare will absolutely kick themselves mm. I think Kildare got an awful lot of stuff right you know the intensity that they were that they were um, both tackling the intensity of their uh, tracking players we, we, we spoke about this after the Dublin game and the fact that they were just at sixes and sevens fellas weren't doing their jobs fellas weren't following players and effectively they gifted those five goals to Dublin whereas I thought on uh, the weekend they were much much better much more on it and where people were heaping praise on their forward prowess, I think the forwards let them down. You know, the forwards at vital times, people would say about shot selection. But the thing about shot selection is, if you're two points up or three points up, and it's around 55, 50 minutes gone, and Mayer were coming at you, and you manage to break out of that, if if the shot isn't on, and it's, and it's, and it's a 50-50 shot, you can't take it, because by taking it, you give the kick out straight away to Mayo. And they just come back at you. By slowing it down, by recycling, by maybe just probing again for literally another minute and a half or two minutes, it gives everyone a bit of a breather in your, in your, in your team. And it allows you potentially go at them and it gets them set and it gets you set. By Flynn, Jimmy Highland, Cribben, these lads taking long range shots and them going wide. Constantly to the left of the post. Yeah, like that just, shot repetitively. Absolutely. Just, I, I, I don't want to say because you're talking about very established and experienced players there, but actual experience of time top level football they've had one season in Division yeah. 1 that they're not used to having to make those sort of decisions because you know Division 2 are you know the majority of Leinster games you get away with that sort of stuff correct and I think look what happens is you do a few and they come off right so they're coming off in the first so you think I can continue to do this you know but they, they will I think Kildare will absolutely feel 
Although the measure of the team, for some will look at the result and say, "Ah, no, Kildare were, Kildare were massively in that game, right?" And I think Mayo were, will, will count themselves very lucky. Horan, I think, managed the bench much better than Glenn Ryan did, and I think that as well comes to experience. You know, he knew when to bring on pace around the middle. I thought O'Callaghan was gone in the middle of the field. He, he, like he ran, the fellow ran himself into. He did an unbelievable amount of work, and he was just he was a busted flush at about fifty-five, sixty minutes. They needed some energy in there, and I just think the shot selection, um, the lack of energy down the stretch that ability to close out the game and strangle it and just give your players a bit of a break and then we face a kick out and I think that heaped an awful lot of pressure on their goalkeeper and again they didn't have the same energy to get into spaces so the goalkeeper because actually to be fair to Sky you could see an awful lot of the kick outs from behind and I was looking going there's nowhere obvious for him to kick this you know he just has to put it into an area and invariably or Mayo were winning those but like look on the flip side Mayo you know again the attitude of them to continue to go their self-belief um, and their substitutes made a big difference you know Boland came on kicked a couple of rakers um, nearly every one of them had a contribution to make um, which is what you want and, and I don't just mean like a, a small like a, a pretty big contribution to make um, and and you know down the stretch from 60 minutes on I think they outscored Kildare one three to a point which is which is which is pretty savage Back to Nathan's earlier question about what is Mayo's style of play what is their plan Yeah I kind of avoided that really. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I'm interested in is like do do we expect them to have something up their sleeve for this All-Ireland quarter-final? Because if they approach that quarter-final the exact same way as the league final, we know what the outcome will be. It kind of feels as if they approach this game the same way as the Kildare game as well, we know what the outcome will be. It feels that something has to be planned, some sort of defensive system has to be implemented that we haven't seen so far this year from Mayo for them to get to an All-Ireland semi-final. I think they're smart enough and they're on the road long enough and they have enough belief in themselves that they can alter it, mm. right? And I think they have the personnel to do that. So I wouldn't be, I would not be at all surprised that O'Shea kind of starts at 11 and goes into that double six role, right? That he did during the league. So he goes in there as but a... But not big, for the final, obviously. They, they didn't really no, implement a double no, six at all. No, for I don't, no but, I, but I think they, you know, Flynn... Um, I'm not sure, but I think, like, I mean, I'm so, I was surprised. He must have been injured, okay, because, you know, he was had, he had a powerful league and I think he did get injured at one stage. So it's good to see him back. Mm. They'd be so happy that he got 10 or 15 minutes into his legs. I wouldn't be surprised if he comes in because they'll need that mobile midfield against. Uh, Kerry they will absolutely but I think they will protect and I think what they'll decide is looking at Cork against Kerry they'll say right we need to just put an X as much as we can on Clifford and then we, we fix it up so they didn't go which was surprisingly so they didn't go as you say with that double six against Kerry and so was he kind of looking and saying you never know we will meet these again later down the year we don't want to show them all our cards because it was a kind of a thing if you remember then where it was it was Mullen against Clifford mm. and he handled them well enough but eventually you know Clifford got away from him and you know there's the there's the there's the ones where Mullen was kind of jawing at him and stuff like that but, yeah Ohora oh sorry Ohora yeah 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 but Mullen um, was on him for a section of the earlier game in Tralee yes and you could say the, I know it's smaller pitch worse conditions and all that but it worked out better for yeah. Mayo that day I, I can see them I, look, as I said they've got the personnel they, they certainly have the person and what they do and what Kerry don't particularly like to do is they attack from that full back line so Clifford will find himself a lot of the time running back down the pitch you know so he will and, and it will happen and if they feel that they need to go Keegan 
Mullen, or whoever it is, Hessian, whoever it is back in there, Durkin, McLaughlin, they will go. So they will test you both on, on, on to use the rugby parlance, both sides of the ball. They will test you, on, you know, from there, from defending, and they'll test you and see how, how much, you know, fortitude you have to go back the other way. Now, Kerry have changed that in the last year or so. You can definitely see that they're willing to put, put roll up the, 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 the socks and get back and work. But to constantly do it and to constantly switch it around, that's where I think uh, Mayo will look to do and I think they will position someone like an O'Shea in that central area just to stop those easy balls in in front of the D I'd say he'd be just said listen that's where you sit I don't really care get it and when we get it then you come out you burst out you take a few hits he, he, O'Shea is a funny individual in the sense of he's like one of those uh, uh, kind of machines you see where the flies get attracted to it and die fellas come at him to hit him and <laughs> invariably they end up in the ground but he gets the little hand passes away and people don't think he's doing much but actually by the fact that he's moving and he attracts players, he sucks guys in and then he just slips hand pass. His hands are very, very good and he's very, very good at that. Um, so that's where I think they will try to find some joy against Kerry. Okay. It's obviously a, an incredibly exciting draw for Mayo to get to share the pitch with this all-conquering Kerry <laughs> side and we will have a guard of honour for David Clifford at Crow Park on uh, what looks like Sunday week. Uh, at the very least. At the very least, but yeah. all the focus ahead of the game is going to be on who marks Clifford. You're talking there about maybe stopping to supply more to Clifford but they are going to have to man-mark him. And they, he took Hohor apart. So is there? it's too deep for Lee Keegan to go back. Presumably Keegan goes on Sean O'Shea. Like, do you put Mullen on him again? I think I think I think it's a bit of a yeah I think there's a there's a committee maybe you know I think a horror Mullen are your obvious choices but I think there's definitely like where you say he took him apart I think he took him apart in different circumstances where there was an awful lot of room in front of him and he could go left right the, the supply of the pressure on the ball coming in you know, as a defender, that makes a massive difference. It gives you the opportunity to get a hand in or to push a guy where you need to push him. If if the player out the field is able to get his head up and spray balls left and right to someone like Clifford, you're in big trouble. And it doesn't really make a difference in many players you have back there. So I think the supply, pressure on the supply, plus someone like an O'Shea, as I say, in that area, it's not even that Okay, so people say, well, you know, O'Shea isn't the quickest guy, but it's not even about that. It's about him covering an area. So you then, as a defender, know if it comes there, he, he, he'll be there. So I now can concentrate on this side of Clifford. So I can go right, he can go left. If it comes long and, and, and high across, well, then we can both shift across. But that's more about it. It's more about angles with him rather than actually covering him off. I wouldn't put O'Shea, I wouldn't double up on him. Because what that does is it just, now there's two players gone. And what Clifford would be smart enough to do is there's so much potency elsewhere that he'll just take those two players out of the game and Kerry will have a a straight line through on goal. So leave O'Shea there, or whoever it is, more than likely it could be him, in that central area and then go man-to-man on on, on Clifford. We do have uh, a couple of weeks to build up to that and I'm sure there will be uh, plenty of preview next week before those quarterfinals. Clare are going to be in the quarterfinals as well, Anthony, and... I think everybody wanted them to not get a Kerry or Dublin in the quarterfinals to give them a, a chance of actually or just not playing Kerry for once in a, in, yeah. in, in, a, in a big game in a game that will define their season do they have a chance against Derry in this quarterfinal uh, on the evidence of Saturday um, it's hard it's hard you know it was a fantastic game mm. um, you know like a bit, I think I think over the weekend the Mayo Kildare game was kind of riddled with an awful lot of mistakes and stuff, but it was still quite exciting. But there, yeah. were, there was there was some great games, you know, there was some great games, and I think it puts a lot of uh, kind of 
face back in Gaelic football and it shows the idea of this risk taking as I say Clare had an unbelievable amount of energy like I've never seen the amount of energy that they had in that first 45-50 minutes but I think Roscommon kind of a la Kildare would be absolutely kicking themselves like I'd say they'd be kind of sitting back there today kind of going how did we lose that game from the position we were in you know how did we actually you know hand that over Um so I think there was two things that happened. I think Roscommon came good at a vital time in the match to go three up. And then I think they thought, job done. You know, we'll just see this out. And instead of pushing on, pushing up on Clare, really squeezing them, because I think Clare were at sea, uh, loss at that stage. Podge Collins hit a speculative wide. They looked the beaten docket. The energy levels were low. Um, and I thought Roscommon could have really, you know, put the hammer on them. Um, and they didn't. Um, and that allowed the door just to be slightly open. And to be fair, they have, you know, Sexton in the, in, in the full forward line was absolutely brilliant. Um, and, you know, a lot of different players around who stood up and they got to look at, the, you know, the rub of the green at, at, at certain times and they, and, they, and they made it what it was. But their energy levels are fantastic. The way they come and, and, and run at pace at you, uh, they picked off some great... So, like, some of the kicking in that first half was just absolutely brilliant. Some mm. of the point taking on both sides was fantastic. Um, so, I think they'll go in with confidence. I think it is a bit of a stretch too far because they won't really... Although they have played, obviously, Derry in Division 2 in the league, this is a different animal. And it's going to be interesting to see, can Derry replicate their style of play in Crow Park? Can they, you know, tighten things up as much as they can up north in the sense of make it very, very difficult for you um, and then look to break. Because they're being favourites as well. They've been underdogs in pretty much all their games so far. Yeah, they have. Yeah, and I think they'll be surprised with... with, with, with well, not surprised, but I think they, 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 they'll be... They would be. It'd be remiss of them not to kind of uh, tip the hat to Clare's energy, as I say, Clare's pace, Clare's ability to run at you. Clare's ability to kick scores from all angles. They they run at very very good angles. They they they're very very confident in their kicking. Um, but it is it is. I think it's going to be a step too far. To be honest with you, for Clare, I just think Derry will have probably enough in them. I think Derry now have had a bit of a break. They've probably reset the clock. Um, they've given guys that needed a break a break, and I think they'll come back and they'll probably say to themselves, "We'll keep it tight." And then when we break, we can do massive damage down the far end field. So I think it's going to be a brilliant game again, and I think both sides will come out to play in that game for sure. Now, uh, just one last thing we wanted to get your take on before we wrapped up is uh, the situation in me. We had uh, Andy McEntee in studio with us on Friday for his exit interview after uh, leaving <laughs> his post as as Mead boss. And one person who's not going to be succeeding him in the job is Colin O'Rourke. He was asked about it on the Sunday game yesterday and he says, no, not for me. Uh, who is the guy that you want to see? Oh, that's the million dollar question. Do you see him um, when you look in the mirror in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the question. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, no, I think it's it's... You know, I think I think for the me job, uh, for any intercounty job, I think there has to be a willingness to put your life on hold for that period of time. Um, and Andy alluded to that obviously during the interview, and and everyone knows that. But I don't think people really understand, you know, what exactly that means. Um, it is a twenty four seven type uh, of 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 situation. Um, and I think you nearly have to be, you have to be passionate about it, but you also have to be able to leave it kind of at the door when you come in, if you know what I mean. There has to be a break from it. Um, and I think you can get consumed by it. Um, Mead supporters are, you know, uh, 
they're, they're very simple, I think, to, to on the majority to, you know, kind of appease because you just need effort and you need commitment. So, you know, you can go into a game and if a, if a Mead fan will see a player literally busting a gut and, you know, diving on the ball and doing what they can to win the game, even if they win it or not, they will be happy. Um, and, and, and that's, and that's something that they've, that has always been there. So, you know, I know I alluded to this a couple of weeks ago. The, the players themselves and the players in the county who are who are available, they need to get back to brass side. They need to get back to that ability of character and what it what it takes to actually put on the jersey. And I don't just mean that in kind of that's a simple thing to throw out, but what it means to actually get to those levels. You can be conditioned, you can be trained with the best trainers, you can have the best skill sets, all those different things. But but that thing needs to be found, whatever that is. And when we look at these eight teams that are left. All of those teams have that, some more so than others. Um, but you talk about Clare. Clare players had that at the weekend. Like, I mean, they went to some areas that they didn't want to go. They could have easily petered out in that game, but they found a character to keep going. Um, so, you know, I think Andy's situation is, is, is strange. I think the county board thing is, is, is a very, very odd situation because the move against them last year um, at the start of the year was odd. You know, I think there was a lot of pressure that came from the whole Bernard Flynn thing that happened in the under twenties, uh, which I think was 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 ridiculous, really, to be honest with you. Because if you remember at the time, Flynn resigned as manager of it, and there was this kind of um, accusation that because certain players weren't made available for the under twenties, or were rather should I say were were superseded by the seniors, which is the way it should be. You know, if you're even if you're an under twenty, if you're on the senior panel, senior panel should get first dibs. So I think that caused more. More pressure to be heaped on Andy and his management team, and unfortunately, players are just—you know—they're they're human. Um, and what happens is, if they get a sense or a, a smell that, well, actually, this guy and these fellas what might not be here, and it mightn't be the same gig next year. Some, uh, whether they're making a, a, a decision themselves, it, it just slips back. They maybe go from fifth gear to fourth gear. Or at those vital times, as I say, it's just not there. I don't know why. Maybe it's human nature. Um, you know, I played under managers, you know, uh, fortunately or unfortunately during my career, where, you know, kind of as a bunch of players, you said, well, actually, it's our head on the chopping block too. Like, we are the players. We're the people who are out there on the pitch. Um, and you have to have the character and the and the will to say, no matter what's going on on the sideline and behind the scenes, we're going to actually do it on the pitch. We're going to try to raise the standards. So I think regardless of who gets the job, I think there's a body of work to be done there. I think the the county board have to back a person. There can't be any shred of doubt that this person hasn't got their backing for two or three years or whatever it is, or even a year, and that there has to be a willingness to get the whole county behind them. Much the same as the whole county is behind the, the Mead ladies. You know, you can see the the, 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 the ferocity of, of the support for, for the Mead ladies, which is fantastic. And everything feeds off itself. You know, what's on the pitch feeds off what's off the pitch, and it all becomes very, very harmonious. But if you don't have that, if there's a, if there's a, a split at all in that you can deny it for a period of time which probably Andy and his management team did but eventually it just seeps back through the cracks and uh, unfortunately that's what happened it has to have an impact like does that put off people from wanting the job like well i think so like i akin it to you know you go in to be say the ceo of a company and your board of directors above are split on whether they want you or not would anyone take that job no i wouldn't 
So you go in and the only reason you will go in to become the main man and the CEO of that company will be that the board of directors are fully behind you and they're all saying, we're all pointing towards the North Star. We're all going to get this done. Whatever that is. That, and like this fanciful idea is that's an All-Ireland. Well, no, it's not. What, what is it at the start? What is success? Like, I mean, is it a small thing that we're going to just say, right, we're going to perform and our performances are going to be at a level. We may not win those games, but it's going to be at a level. And if we keep getting those performances, which I would imagine some team like Derry did, you know, they played. If we keep getting those performances and we build and we build and we build, well, then eventually we may get to Crow Park and an All-Ireland quarterfinal. And here they are. So is it that man in the mirror when you wake up in the morning? At any stage, maybe not next year, at, at some point down the line. I'm too, you lads keep me too busy for that stuff. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> get off the fence. So you're saying there's no chance. No. Anthony, <laughs> great stuff. Thanks, Willie, for popping in this morning. Cheers, lads. Appreciate Thanks. it. Uh, yeah, OTB- <laughs> <laughs> uh, OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We're back tomorrow morning from half past seven. Ashton will be in studio with myself and we'll be joined by Tyrone goalkeeper Niall Morgan reviewing uh, their county's season. Uh, Phil Egan will be in studio to preview Ireland against Ukraine and we'll have much more besides. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.